This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared it subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting a position on in. We'll never let the truth back some of our boards to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high positions, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 73. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, we are going to crack into a, a pretty weighty tome, I think you could say, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a three-volume three volume. tome. Yeah. We're not, just doing uh, volume something... one, we decided. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to do yeah, volume yeah. one today. Um, yeah. A kind of a, a, Spread it a, out. a critical materialist analysis that spans three very healthy volumes. No, I don't want to disappoint anybody. We're not doing a capital reading series. Mm-hmm. We're gonna, but it's gonna be a little bit like that, I think. You know, yeah, the slightly um, lesser known uh, work. So I think it's it's worth it's worth doing, bringing to people's attention. It's an interesting book by an interesting person, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, definitely within the Marxist tradition, and published, I think, in what nineteen oh nine initially. But this uh, this book. The History of the Great American Fortunes by Gustavus Myers was something that I stumbled upon a few years ago. I think when I think when we were writing a script that kind of took place during the Gilded Age and had to do with a lot of uh, industrial labor intrigues and things like that. Mm-hmm. I stumbled upon this because I wanted to read more. Uh, I, I wanted to find some kind of histories of the robber baron kind of railroad tycoon era that were perhaps not so um, hagiographic or, mm-hmm. you know, whitewashed or whatever, as a lot of, like, the mainstream historical accounts from that time, and I don't know, maybe yeah, to a certain extent sure. today are. Yeah, yeah. Really well, historians, I feel like, as we've seen again and again, just a lot of the time don't really go back to the original sources and just, like, repeat bullshit, so... Yep. Like, to this day, like, you know, this is a relatively good history from the 19th century, but in doing research for this, I found, like, he is still cited pretty often by contemporary historians. Like, the information that he hmm. compiled, like, is still relied upon. And the same is true for, like, his less reliable, like, more toady-aligned uh, uh, contemporaries in, in terms yeah. of, you know, what people cite or rely upon today. Like, I think totally. he even says at one point, uh, I think it might be in part one, but at any at any rate, at some point in the book, he does mention how, like, it is just extremely normal 
to like eulogize out of all proportion like businessmen and talk about how yeah. great they are and mm-hmm. you know even if they're just like the worst people ever the bar is yep. so low they're just treated as being like a businessman of the best type even if they're like total plunderers and uh, absolutely or you know, the certain virtues the same old virtues get you know basically lionized so his frugality his thrift his vision his foresight blah 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 he basically what I love about this book, and I think when I discovered it, because I was only focused on railroad stuff, I only read volume two, uh, which I still, a lot of it I remember. I think I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast, um, how, like, his description of, like, how land in the West was bought up, for example. Um, but, you know, I I was happy to read through volume one, which we're going to talk about today, and seeing how he goes back to the absolute beginning of colonization basically of like the eastern mm-hmm. you know seaboard of the US and kind of identifies like similar patterns which he just pounds into the like into the dirt every single chapter like we were talking about how we love the subheaders of each chapter and how they're yeah. just like like unlimited amazing. bribery with impunity like a city yeah, betrayed exactly. like <laughs> just, he, you know, yeah he he found like so many different ways to just say like wanton bribery uh yeah uh, profiting from gigantic thefts uh rentals <laughs> from disease and death humanity yeah. of no consequence uh, yeah. The abasement of the workers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. The landed proprietors, yeah. the political rulers, the, a conflict between land magnates <laughs> and people. Yeah, no, he License really... License piracy rampant. Uh, yeah, just <laughs> like... it's This yeah. book is full of, and he does complain, I think, quite righteously in, I think, the, the introduction or the preface to it, that nobody was ultimately willing to publish this book when it came. I think, yeah, I mean, he eventually yeah, found a he publisher had trouble in Chicago. With, but. Yeah, he had trouble with both his, like, first historical book, which is about Tammany Hall, which I think was really mm-hmm. what kind of radicalized him. Like, at first, he was just, like, doing, like, historical work to learn about Tammany Hall and its origins and things. But over time, he became uh, generally, like, pretty, pretty politically radical. I think this ultimately was published by, like, kind of a Marxist press, at mm-hmm. the time, uh, yeah, and yeah, Charles with H. Karen Company, yeah, or at least this mm-hmm. edition that I'm looking at, yeah. Would you? Uh, by the way, anybody can find this on archive.org and a bunch of other sources, so it's like easily available. Yeah, basically, mm-hmm. I think it's even yeah. on the Gutenberg project, so it's been out there. But of course, like he he invades very heavily also against the media and like mainstream, you know, uh, academics and historians and journalists and all kinds of people, and he talks about the insidiousness of, like, the ideology, it's almost, like, a approach... I mean, it's certainly... It's, like, a, you know, ever-pervasive dominant ontology of the sanctity of property, basically, that mm-hmm. pervades American society. And really, this is... This might be the ultimate Ain't Nothing New Under the Sun episode because you see, yeah. like, the same dynamics recurring. Of course, you know, they, they change. Things evolve over time. But there's certain core kind of ontological assumptions and, like, values, like, hierarchy of values that basically persisted, particularly with basically the people that made a shitload of money and got contr- became very wealthy and influential at the very beginning there's always been that class in the United States and it has like persisted and morphed over several hundred years. And then there's always been like the toiling masses, basically things are a little bit different now, but seeing the similarities between even stuff that was going on in like 1815 to 
to like today, today's politics and arguments over or economic depredations or power grabs by billionaires. Like it's really, you know, the illusion of choice and like the capture of the political institutions by basically like grand capitalists, like, you know, high, uh, high wealth capitalists is really very consistent. Yeah, it's amazing that he he also points out that I think even going back to maybe like the 1700s uh, and certainly in the early 1800s that, you know, I think we've even bandied about the uh, story that like, oh, John D. Rockefeller, I think maybe it was even Edward Bernays, like told him that like if he threw if he went around and like threw like dimes to like little poor kids in the street and then somebody filmed it, then it would make people like him more or something like that. But it's actually a much older idea that a lot of these early merchant trader type people who made a lot of money around like the American Revolution period realized that by giving, you know, 1% of their wealth back to like a charitable cause, it earns them so much in clout and gets so many people off their backs and exalts them so much that like they've been doing that little one, two thing for centuries, basically, you know, um, since like the, the yeah. earliest, the, like embryonic stages of, kind of modern capitalism. So it wasn't just like, oh, Henry Ford discovered it or John D. Rockefeller discovered it. Like they all basically learned how to kind of launder some of their influence back and in a way that makes it look like they're giving back, even though, and, and thus the the question is kind of evaded of, well, why do you still get to keep like 99% of like what you earn, quote unquote, I think uh, Gustavus Myers put in heavy air quotes, earned. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's an amazing part, like actually towards the end of this volume, like we're going to talk in depth. One of the, the, probably the biggest figure in this first volume is the, is John Jacob Astor and the Astor family and the Astor fortune. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a part towards the end where he's kind of breaking away from uh, the Astors and uh, coming up to, you know, the time of his writing and he's talking more generally about uh, the way they present themselves in the political sphere. Uh, and he has this great part, which uh, he writes, Up to the present generation, the Astros had never set themselves out as, quote, reformers in politics. They had plundered right and left, but withal had made no great pretenses. The fortune held by the Astors, so the facts indubitably show, represents a succession of piracies and exploitation. Very curious, therefore, it is to note that the Astors of the present generation have avowed themselves most solicitous reformers and have been members of pretentious, self-constituted committees composed of the, quote, best citizens, the object of which has been to purge New York City of Tammany corruption. Leaving aside the Astors and considering the attitude of the property class as a whole, this posing of the so-called better element as reformers has been and is one of the most singular characteristics of American politics and its most colossal sham. Although continuously, with rare intermittent the landholders and the railroad and the industrial magnets have been either corrupting public officials or availing themselves of the benefits of corrupt politics. Many of them, not in New York alone, but in every American city, have been at the same time metamorphosing themselves into reformers. Not reformers, of course, in the true high sense of the word, but as ingenious counterfeits. With the most ardent professions of civic purity and of horror at the prevailing corruption, they have come forward on occasions clothed in a fine and pompous guard of righteousness. 
the very <laughs> men who cheated cities, states, and nation out of enormous subs in taxation, who, subs in taxation, who bribed through their retainers, legislatures, common councils, and executive and administrative officials, who corruptly put judges on the bench, who made government simply an auxiliary to their designs, who exacted heavy tribute from the people in a thousand ways, who forced their employees to work for pre- precarious wages, and who bitterly fought every movement for the betterment of the working classes. These were the men who have made up these so-called, quote, reform committees, precisely as today they constitute them. If there had been the slightest serious attempt to interfere with their vested privileges, corruptly obtained and corruptly enhanced, and with the vast amount of increment and graft that these privileges bought them, they would have instantly raised the cry of revolutionary confiscation. But they were very willing to put an end to the petty graft which the politicians collected from saloons, brothels, peddlers, and the small merchants, and thereby present themselves as respectable and public-spirited citizens, appalled at the existing corruption. The newspapers supported them in this attitude, and occasionally a sufficient number of the voters would sustain their appeals and elect candidates that they presented. The only real difference was that under an openly corrupt machine, they had to pay in bribes for franchises, laws, and immunity from laws, while under the, quote, reform administrations, which represented and toadied to them, they often obtained all these and more without the expenditure of a cent. It has often been much more economical for them to have, quote, reform in power, and it is a well-known truism that the business class reform administrations, which are popularly assumed to be honest, will go to greater lengths in selling out the rights of the people than the most corrupt political machine, for the reason that their administrations are not generally suspected of corruption and therefore are not closely watched. Moreover, corruption by bribes is not always the most effective kind. There is a much more sinister form. It is that which flows from conscious class use of a responsive government for insidious ends. Practically all of the American reform movements have come within this scope. This is no place for a dissertation on these pseudo-reform movements. It is a subject deserving of a special treatment by itself. But it is well to advert to them briefly here, since it is necessary to give constant insights into the methods of the property class. Whether corruption or reform administrations were in power, the cheating of municipality and state and taxation has gone on with equal vigor. Uh, yes, which, you know, Oof. really could. Yeah, like, yeah, you can Damn. definitely see the application of that today. Yeah. Loaded with buckshot in both barrels. Yeah. Shots have mm-hmm. been fired. Um, yeah. The, exactly. He, I, I, he really gets into some tears in, in these volumes, and that's... One of the best. What does that remind you of? Does that remind you of anything? I don't know. It's yeah. Just, uh, something that my tongue <laughs> right. the whole time. Like some kind of organization that like pretends to be really revolutionary, but they're kind of still tied to sheepdogging people back into the two-party, you know, fake sham political process and overrepresented by the property class as its vanguard celebrity leaders. Ah, no, I just <laughs> can't think of it. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I'll, I'll remember it later. Yeah, uh, but yeah, no, like t- really, that was this is written in 1909. Yeah, and like we fast forward 110 years, and we haven't. In some ways, we're still kind of like singing the same old song in terms yeah, of these dynamics and like the power of this class and sun in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. Like these. Yeah, he has another book that I think is kind of like about the decline in a way of some of the hereditary wealth that he talks about uh, in this book, which might, since we're going to split up this book anyway, it might be good to explore that uh, as well at some point. But sure, yeah, like sure. uh, a he lot had a of political the, evolution, I think, right? Like later in life. Um, I mean, I think that he was pretty, I mean, he was pretty consistent. Like uh, he kind of evolved politically in that 
he was like an American patriot, like in World War World War One. You know, yes. yeah, he that died seemed to be a little bit of a really split. Got going. Yeah, he died kind of. But II. yeah, I mean, I feel like that's not so uh, odd, like or so out of step with what like he's writing in this. Like, I think he was still kind of a critic of the American system, but you know, also of like Imperial Germany, uh, which I feel like fair enough. You know. Uh, Mm-hmm. The ending of Hereditary yeah. American Fortunes was yeah, 1939 that he uh, wrote that. So, yeah, I'd be curious to see exactly Yeah, he didn't actually he finish it. It was, like, published posthumously, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, okay. he was writing at the time of his death. Yeah. You know, he was also, like, I think kind of optimistic in some ways. You know, he also, I think, wrote a book about the, like, American tradition of idealism, you know, and how Americans mm-hmm. will always push for you know, improvements and things and, you know, but we yeah. Don't, and but he, I, I did read, read I did read in yeah. the preface to the 1936 edition uh, that mm-hmm. he kind of said some cautiously positive things about FDR and said that basically yeah. like he quoted, I think a paragraph of FDR basically saying that hereditary wealth as it has existed in the United States basically ought to be abolished and mm-hmm. like through estate taxes and other things like that. And that, you know, it's like intolerable to like the great masses of the American people that people basically get to maintain these like intergenerational private corporations and like the the economic and social and political privileges that that gives like a very small group of um, kind of almost like an extended web of families over the, you know, basically democratic quote unquote process of our government that affects everybody and they can do it to like basically aggrandize their own, you know, basically rarefied standing, uh, you know, that that had to go. I think to some extent, uh, Roosevelt who himself kind of came from one of these people we'll talk about. I don't know if the Roosevelt's uh, were uh, patroons literally, but they definitely came from, they did, right? The Roosevelt's came from the kind of new Amsterdam Dutch background. Yeah, I think so, but I don't quite recall what their roots were when they came to the United States. I just knew that they were upper crust, like old school, like Yankee, yeah. basic, like mm-hmm. Dutch Yankee sure. New York people. Um, you know, yeah. obviously, uh, you know, which is to say, yeah, he wasn't like the, this working class uh, hero or whatever. No, Roosevelt but didn't I think come he, up from nothing at all. Like his, exactly. Yeah, not, oh, and the Delanos really. as well. Yeah, he came from. Okay, as Myers talks about, and we'll get into this like towards the end of the book. He did say that around in the mid eight, the mid eighteen hundreds that intermarriage really started to become like a, a very important thing. And uh, we'll, we'll read that passage later where he really like rips into like the society pages in general and like how trivial and stupid they are, but obviously they serve a purpose. Like why are they announcing so-and-so got married to so-and-so at, or just like these long, uh, I think we've talked about recently digging through some old newspapers.com stuff about just these like lavish descriptions, kind of like the Betty, Betty Ford Aquino stuff of just like lavish descriptions of like a party listing, like every single person that was there and the delightful entertainments that were to be had and all this. And it's like, why does this map? This isn't relevant to like 99.9% of people that are like reading the newspaper, but it's, you know, it's a flex basically. Right. And Mm -hmm. marriages are also about preserving family fortunes, over the course of generations and basically like a a kind of very long process of just the inexorable centralization of financial power within an ever kind of 
well, I guess you wouldn't say an ever smaller group of families, but maybe just, you know, concentrated in certain social subsets or something like that, that also has access to like the political structure and, you know, shaping opinion in society and everything else like right at the top. So, yeah, man, you're right. The, yeah. uh, by the by, the way, the Roosevelt family does go back to the name Roosevelt. Uh, comes all the way, it goes all the way back to like New Amsterdam. Yeah, they like, came the here as, as some sometime yeah. before, between Nicholas 1638. Roosevelt was like the progenitor of the Roosevelt family in New York. Uh, he was wow. like a fur trader. In oh Asobis. yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of fur traders, wow. Actually, uh, how about the, how about this? Just for a context setter, because you know the, the Roosevelts are not particularly talked about in at least the first volume of this book. Uh, I think Teddy Roosevelt pops up a couple times because he was prominent in New York. But just listing here on Wikipedia, th- this is very um, instructive. I think the the families that are connected through uh, to the Roosevelt family through marriage, basically. So we have the Delano family, the DuPont family, the Astor family, the Livingston family, the Longworth family, the Hoffman family. I wonder if that's Halleck Hoffman, you know, the, the guys who ran the Ford Foundation and Pacifica. Um, I think it is, actually. And then the Schuyler family, the Goodyear family. The Schuyler family, you know, yes, as we Yeah, the Schuyler family, big. very big. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, Goodyear, the Goodyear family, who invented vulcanized rubber and basically like, mm. you know, tires. Uh, the Lowell family, the DePeister family, and the Whitney family. And, of course, Whitney, uh, actually, unexpectedly, it gets a kind of like almost sympathetic treatment in this book for, uh, I guess, really getting screwed out of inventing the cotton gin. But that is a heavy-hitting list, isn't it? <laughs> of like powerful families that are all like, that's not a coincidence. You know what I mean? Like, I think we have to like, we have to maybe, I think set that down at the outset when we go on this, this journey to the past that it's not coincidental that all these people just marry each other. Like, I mean, I guess to a certain extent you marry who grows up in the community and society around you, I guess, you know, especially in older times, but the, there's clearly an economic political aspect to these alliances yeah. between all these families. Like, it's obvious. It's it's as obvious as it is with, like, English nobility and, like, dukes and lords and duchesses and all that shit, right? Yeah, like, I mean, it, of it, course it, you could say the same thing about them, that they they marry the people who are in their society, like, you know, in the literal sense, like, the people who they socialize with, uh, but also, it, like, you know, in the sense that that's the sort of subsect of society that they belong to, like the ruling class. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, so they, they marry within their own class. Uh, they do, yeah. they do. Um, I think I saw maybe it was like Emma Booth on Twitter recently saying that, you know, the like there's kind of like a real economic reason for that, and it which is basically that like wealth starts to get split up a little bit too diffusely after about three generations from whoever the kind of, you know, patriarch was that made the big made the big fortune you know and if you go more than three generations without but just splitting it up to all the children basically of everybody then it starts to you know get small so after three generations like these families who are probably all like third fourth fifth cousins to each other have to like you have to like marry your third cousin like every two or three generations or something like that just to like keep the wealth like like so it doesn't slip away so you got to yeah, keep like course. to a certain it's like you have to do a calculated not quite incest but like eh, it's like it, it's basically why princes and uh people like that you know 
uh, marry their first cousins and things like that. You know, kings and queens right. of, of Europe like married their first cousins all the time. That was more for a kind of it's like a slightly different because it had this. It was all about political authority, but also there was like wealth intimately involved, obviously, in kind yeah, of those I mean, kind of alliances. What you're bringing up is very interesting because it kind of gets into changing uh, attitudes around like marriage and like because when we think about marriage, like basically what you're saying is that like it's not that they fall in love and get married like in the movies, but really yeah. like it's kind of an interesting subject because I feel like that idea of marriage is relatively provincial and new. Like it's all consuming like in our culture now that like, mm. you know, you meet someone like in a rom-com and like you yeah. get married to them. But like, of course that's relatively young and certainly not like culturally universal. And mm. you know, like even if you go back a little bit in time, when, you know, he even talks about, like, the incredible, like, mortality of infants and things like that, you know, during this yeah. time, like, uh, under, like, due to the policies of some of these people and things like that, and how cheap life was, you know, it's just, yeah. like, a very different thing, like, you know, there are these stories of, of love, the idea of love is uh, one that uh, is timeless, of course, but... Yeah, it's something that obviously has transformed with uh, changes in society. And I think that the way that that accommodates, like, the tension between that or the idea of love and its relationship to marriage has definitely changed. And I, I think that it's, it's largely true that the notion of, like, not marrying for, like, maybe practical concerns, like, the whole uh, idea of its argument, like, isn't really something that necessarily occurs to you that, you know, yeah, it's, like, just natural to... Mary. I, I, I think, for, the, yeah. yeah, that's an important thing to touch on because I feel like, you know, has Hollywood kind of psyoped us for like almost 100 years now with presenting love as kind of like this, you know, this this optimistic dream of kind of romantic love being it is a very modern idea, I think, compared to how most cultures probably went around it. I also it's feel the, like maybe you know, it the, really is interesting. This is kind of a digression. <laughs> I mean, well, I guess maybe it's not a digression. It is interesting how often that fairy tale is the Great Flutations fairy tale of Pip, you know, uh, and Estella. Uh, Dickens actually did change his ending Great Flutations, as I recall, because the original one was too depressing because he didn't feel that, like, Pip and Estella didn't end up together after all that, you know, like, uh, and a lot of the time the fairy tale that we get involves, like, a prince, you know? Uh, yeah. Like, uh, especially, like, these Disney movies, you know, it's like... Marrying a common girl, C Cinderella. Cinderella, yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. you know, so... Uh, and that did happen he sometimes. Because he falls in love, you know? Uh, not really. Well, I mean, okay, no, 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 I mean, it, sometimes uh, it could happen to some extent. If uh, th there are a few examples of this, and maybe it was more. I can't when think these, of like families... a monarch who married no. a commoner. Well, I mean, like, I, guess, I don't know, Meghan Markle, like Meghan Markle, I guess, would be like well, the closest you know, thing in, to that. That's in modern times, but Meghan Markle isn't a commoner. Yeah, I guess like she's not of royal blood. I mean, I don't really know what her genealogy is, and like. Also, there was a controversy within the royal family, like about that, you know, like and yeah, so no, exactly. Well, exactly, clearly, exactly. Like, I mean, but or just go back to like every wealthy, single, like a yeah, mm -hmm. go back to every right. single Jane Austen novel that's been gets remade into a movie every five years and is still very popular. A lot of people really like it, and that's all about this kind of um, Victorian era tension between kind of love and oh, but I'm like supposed to marry this gentleman, but at the end of the day, it's I I don't know. I could be wrong about some Jane Austen novels, but at least the, the few ones I've read or the movie adaptations, it's like usually not like she falls in love with a stable boy. 
and wants to like run off with him. It's like, oh, this guy, his father like gambled away half their estate, but he's still a gentleman and he has a title, but like he's a little bit in held in disrepute, so he's a bad boy. Well, but then there's like this nerd who's like uh, maybe an asshole who, you know, she's supposed to marry him and then that will rejuvenate her family's estate. Like there's all these economic considerations. Well, pride like, and prejudice like, weaved like into those actually plots. Pride and Prejudice is kind of the opposite, where she's kind of prejudiced originally against the guy who's rich. You know, I used but to he doesn't reveal Austin, that he's rich, but right? But now I'm a Jane Austen apologist, kind of, or at least I'm mm, being one right okay. now. No, he does reveal that he's rich. She just thinks he's an asshole, but because oh, okay. he's, you know, but it's her pride and her prejudice against him because he seems like an asshole where, you know, he actually, uh, you know, she, uh, this is a huge digression, but... You know, there's this other dude, Colonel Wickham, I think, yeah, or uh, yeah. something, you know, uh, who is like this soldier and he presents himself as being like defrauded by Darcy. And, uh, you know, he did just, you know, he was like a, an adopted son of Darcy's father. And, you know, but then he disinherited him and Darcy was so cruel and evil. But really, like, it turns out that a guy like has a hat. It was like a a profligate gambler, you know, oh, that's and, right. uh, yeah. you know, yeah. he like constantly elopes with young women to, you know, exploit like whatever meager fortunes they have and things like that. There's also the, like the sort of, uh, the guy, the priest, Mr. Collins, who, mm -hmm. uh, is like a cousin of hers, her cousin, I think, who proposes to her also. And like, he has a certain endowment, but he is, you know, just too gross. So she says no to him. She really gets the best of both worlds where she gets Darcy. Who's like, super sexy and like handsome but and also and actually not an asshole it has pepper yeah, it has pepperly yeah exactly and they, so yeah, it was really the interloper who wasn't it of the noble it, it, it was the, it was the interloper who was of but, you know, unsound yeah, but blood as, and unsound character but as who Bennett, ends up being the bad but, uh, <laughs> yeah exactly as the the lower class soldier of the empire who uh turns out to be to be bad or the you know what appears to be the one who's uh, doing the dirty work for the exploited. british east india yeah. company yeah it's very interesting to consider like where the wealth of some of these austin characters come from because it almost certainly comes from slavery in some cases but Anyway, you know, yeah. in terms of the practicalities <laughs> of marriage, like one of the big themes of that book is Mrs. Bennett is always talking about, you know, scheming to make sure that all of her daughters get married because they only have daughters. You know, they wanted yeah. to have some sons, but they only have daughters. So it's a huge thing where she has to marry off all these girls, you know, because yeah. otherwise, like, they're screwed. Uh, and yeah. it's very much like, you know, just whoever you can get married to, like, get married to, you know. And there's a, yeah, Mr. Bennett, of course, like, comes off like uh, such a, you know, a cool guy because when Mr. Collins, like the gross priest, uh, proposes to Elizabeth, you know, he has that great line uh, that's something like, I mean, I hope this isn't from like one of the miniseries and not in the actual novel, but I think it is in the actual novel where, you know, mm -hmm. he says like, uh, your mother will never uh, forgive you if you don't take this marriage, but I won't forgive you if you do. Uh, and like kind of, you know, he's he's like a cad who's always reading and everything, you know, or not a cad, mm -hmm. but you know, a, a gadfly who's always I reading see. and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, he yeah, kind of yeah. has a more high-minded ideals and, uh, you uh -huh, know, but uh -huh. it's, but, it's interesting because Pride and Prejudice is very meta in a way because it's all about the ideas of novels, just like in her first book, North Ranger Abbey, you know, it's all about the effect of, like, these novels and ideals of romantic love and how they interact with practical concerns. So, hmm. but anyway, yeah. Anyways, uh, like, uh, there's but you a, know what, that, the, there's a relationship okay, between these things, yeah. Yes, and I think at that's actually not a bad place to actually dive into this book. Um, <laughs> yeah. When we're talking about things like primogeniture and being a landed aristocrat and things like that, because that's where Gustavus Myers starts, right? 
He starts at yeah. the very beginning in the early colonial era, and he talks about, I think in particular, let's see. So in the early settlement, when they were first giving out land, both the, uh, the colony of New Amsterdam, which is, you know, owned by the Dutch, and yeah. New England, and then uh, they even, you know, they mention the beginning of uh, 1619. The this this book's almost like the real oh, 1619, wow. 1619 project. 1619 project, yeah. Yeah, yeah I didn't yeah. actually pick up on that. That's funny. Yeah, no, uh, I because I realized like, like if, if this is kind of what what I would hope. I, I didn't actually read the entire 1619 project, and so I won't go the bash too hard on it either way. But I do think. Uh, yeah, basically, I mean, this, this lays it out in kind of a Marxist terminology. He wasn't, I think, in the Socialist Party of America, I want to say. When you he know what? This. I wonder if Nicole Hannah-Jones read this, because it really is interesting. Uh, she, he writes, hmm. you know, the introduction of black slaves, fast as English courts might work, they did not supply laborers enough. It was with exultation that in 1619 the plantation owners were made acquainted with a new means of supplying themselves with adequate workers. A mm-hmm. Dutch ship arrived at Jamestown with a cargo of Negroes from Guinea. The blacks were promptly bought at good prices by the planters. From this time forth, the problem of labor was considered sufficiently solved. As chattel slavery harmonized well with the necessities of tobacco growing and gain, it was accepted as a just condition and was continued by the planters, whose interests and standards were the dominant factor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And he was saying he was saying that because basically the London Company, which was thrice chartered to take over to itself the land and resources of Virginia and populate its zone of rule, was endowed with sweeping rights and privileges with which made it an absolute monopoly. So this is actually important because the people that kind of set the first stage for what what you can do and not do in these colonial territories of, you know, Mm -hmm. the East Coast um, of the future U.S., is these private kind of mercantilist corporations, which are basically, you know, chartered by empires, like European empires, um, to extract, uh, to basically develop and extract resources from this area. So basically there, you know, there are particular rules and, or in some cases, lack of rules to basically what you could do, what kind of people would end up there. And so, you know, we're talking about the very earliest and, they, um, but what was there, um, is basically the two things that determine the first, like, uh, groups of wealthy people in these colonies were, like, the ownership of land and profits from trading goods, basically. Pretty simple. And then, but they were basically, you know, uh, seen over and kind of governed and sanctioned by things like the London Company, which, so there's already, like, a kind of a corporate, like, a big corporate kind of influence yeah. uh, happening well, right. right at well, the beginning. Well, they were, they were, companies were basically enfranchised by, like, the, the state back in these European countries, both in the Netherlands and in England. And, yeah. yeah, he makes a note that, of course, you know, he talks a little bit about Virginia and Maryland, but the big landed estates were really centered in New Netherland, or the New Netherlands, or whatever they call it. I'm sure yeah. it had a... Uh, a Dutch name, uh, and also in New England. Uh, uh, New, a- New Amsterdam was what it was called. Or, uh, yeah, or, or whatever. I guess it was bigger than just New York. New Amsterdam but, like, New was York New York City, was, yeah. You're, you're but right, yeah. New Netherland was, yeah, encompassed, like, a lot, including upstate and things like that, you know. Yeah, uh, and that but, was interesting yeah. because that was, like, properly feudal in a, in a way that I feel like uh, the English colonies had a kind of, like, ersatz feudalism thing where you could 
you could buy a plot of land and like build an estate and you had pretty sweeping rights and you could buy slaves to work on it or buy, you know, I guess, you know, we'll give a shout out to like the, the Irish were slaves first, um, you know, lobby out there that, um, that actually they first tried to bring over like white indentured servants to Virginia first. And they would basically, which were mostly, uh, Myers says, were penniless and lowly Englishmen, arrested and convicted for any one of the multitude of offenses then provided for severely in law, were transported as criminals or sold into the colonies as slaves for a term of years. So that's the old indentured servitude. But it really did sound like it, it was like basically slavery. It was just like you would get let go after a certain while, but yeah. you basically had well, no rights. Uh, I mean, right. you know, no, being an indentured is, yeah, servant was awful, but not as bad. Yeah. was awful, but it was not as bad. Yeah, there was a, but, but what's interesting. Yeah, and, too, and I don't know if yeah. this, like, I don't know if this clashes with like the vibe of the 1619 projects. Like I said, I, I didn't read over it closely, but it, it wasn't necessarily like the, the racist motivation, at least the way Myers lays it out. Um, doesn't seem to be kind of the primary reason why they switched to slaves from Africa. It was basically they needed a kind of model of like hyper exploitation of workers that basically you could treat as property and then just kind of steal them and like buy them and stuff like that. And I think, I mean, that's also where the necess- the like ideological necessity of racism comes in at the very beginning because if you have to justify this economically, and I don't know, especially if, if you some some of these people fancy themselves Christians, though it seems like the further south you went, the less important that was. These people were just out looking to get a piece of something new. And it was the economic. It's like this model didn't work unless you s- kidnapped a bunch of people and put them into slavery for life to work for you and basically be. Property, yeah. Right? Well, but I do like think it, that like the reason for that is basically that like ultimately even like poor white people had too many rights uh and they couldn't be like brought over as like (laughs) completely destitute laborers uh, in enough abundance so i think that there was like from the very beginning like a a heavily racist component to it uh that racism was like very closely bound up with the reason why this was possible like these two things uh, came into existence together like the material system and the or the, you know the the ideological system and the economic system uh, it came into existence together or developed together in the same way that this kind of uh, colonization like you said you drew a comparison with feudalism uh, like the development of the corporation as such like that evolves from economic structures that existed in the past you know racism as we know it now in the 19th century evolves from ideological structures that exist in the past including ones like of religious supremacy or sort of more incohate or less developed or less like uh, ideologically accreted or fixed ideas of, of racial supremacy that are of course relatively old uh and you know so yeah i think that there is definitely yeah, some, yeah. a heavy role of racism early on and i think on the other side of the coin like you know when it actually was abolished uh, slavery was abolished. I think the main reason for that also had like an economic motive and that the same way that it was profitable, so profitable at that time or so convenient and useful in this colonial context later yeah. on, I think that, you know, both, uh, the Dutch East India company, uh, and the Dutch West India company and the London company found that it stopped to, it ceased to be as profitable, uh, in, you know, the, the future and they wanted to exploit their, uh, properties or their, access to Africa in different ways 
Uh, and that's part of the reason why slavery ended up being, you know, abolished rather than like, you know, everyone realized that it was wrong necessarily. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like you know. could, it, it, the, the paradigm, the I economic mean, paradigm shifted. Yeah. People did realize that it was wrong. You know, again, they evolved together, but yeah, the economic paradigm shifted along with the idea that, oh yeah, wait a minute, this is wrong. Uh, yeah. I mean, in a way, like who realized it, it was wrong, but yeah, you know, the it, in a way it would have been in, inefficient, um, basically to have, I, I think Myers mentions this at one point that like it was noticed early on by like people in the North that free labor was kind of more efficient or like, uh, I guess productive on average than, than slave labor, I guess for a lot of reasons, but basically right. just as slavery was a necessary ingredient to build the early colonial economy, I think when you got to like mid 1800s, and we'll see this with some of these billionaires, that they really realized like the hyper exploitation of quote unquote free labor, actually in the kind of numbers of people that they needed, which were like mostly very poor immigrants from uh, from Europe at that time, that they could build these vast industrial uh, operations and stuff like that more efficiently by just paying people like horrible wages. And then I think the other thing he points out that it's like, oh, like from the perspective of some some of the more northern merchant class type people was the idea that like, oh, I don't have to like take care of my worker at all if they're just like a worker like working for a wage. Like I don't have to give them health care. I don't have to feed them. I don't have to give them like room and board. Like they're like, you know, and there was this different paradigm in the South where basically they were seen as like as property and an investment. Of course, it's still like the treatment was horrible pretty much like across the board, but they were just looking at kind of a, in this very instrumental way. I think what Myers keeps hitting on is basically that people that didn't have property were pretty much like worthless to like these early kind of um, lords and tycoons of like the the new world, the colonies basically is that like, and the law reflected that pretty aggressively. I mean, it still does uh, to this day, but in a very kind of blatant way. I mean, not just talking about how, you know, property lists like white males couldn't vote after the founding of the country, but just like being a vagrant, like well into the 19th century was just like a crime. Like if you're an unemployed vagrant, you would be just like arrested and thrown in like a, a poorhouse or so, like a workhouse or something yeah. for like six mm-hmm. months. Yeah. Like and, a, yeah. and another guy yeah, like, like a Christmas carol, you know? Yeah. Like Scrooge, like, are there no prisons? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Debtor's yeah. jail. He talks a lot about yeah. debtor's jail. And of course debt is like right. a thing that plays a big role. But anyways, you know, going back, so like the the yeah. kind of very well, beginning. Also, you know, something that he talks about, I think, is that the like economy change. You know, like the the huge landed estates that existed in like upstate New York, for instance, like in the under the patroon system, which I think we're about to go into. Yeah. Like those tr- change, like that's uh, ceased to exist. You know, there was like the feudal tenures that they had up there, like were eventually abolished, like around yeah, the, yeah. you know. Uh, like in the after like in after the, the American century. Revolution, yeah, yeah. yeah. But let's what, let's talk yeah. about the patroons yeah. for a minute. Let's talk about the patroons. So yeah. Myers mm-hmm. writes uh, just basically the the way it was set up when you know uh, the New Netherlands was being established. He says 
In its intense aim to settle New Netherlands and make use of its resources, Holland, through the state's general, offered extraordinary inducements to promoters of colonization. The prospect of immense estates with feudal rights and privileges was held out as the alluring incentive. The Bill of Freedoms and Exemptions of 1629 made easy the possibility of becoming a lord of the soil with comprehensive possessions and powers. Any man who should succeed in planting a colony of 50, quote, souls, each of whom was to be more than 15 years old, was to become at once a patroon with all the rights of lordship. He was permitted to own 16 miles along shore or on one side of a navigable river. An alternative was given of the ownership of eight miles on one side of a river and as far into the interior, quote, as the situation of the occupiers will permit. The title was vested in the patroon forever, and he was presented with a monopoly of the resources of his domain, except furs and pelts. No patroon or other colonist was allowed to make woolen, linen, cotton, or cloth of any material under pain of banishment. These restrictions were in the interest of the Dutch West India Company, a commercial corporation which had well-nigh well dictatorial powers, a complete monopoly throughout the whole of its subject territory. It was armed with sweeping powers, a formidable equipment, and had a great prestige. It was somewhat of a cross between legalized piracy and a body of adroit colonization promoters. Pillage and butchery were often its auxiliaries, although in these respects it in no wise equaled its twin corporation, the Dutch East India Company, whose exploration of Holland's Asiatic possessions was a long record of horrors and so yeah i mean they they offered kind of literal lordship for people to move and so people did that and then of course you basically had all the rights to the resources so like the the timber basically brought colossal profits uh there were valuable fishery rights um if they you know bordered a shore or river and i guess like fishing was a huge economic boost to boston in particular like massachusetts really mm. made a ton of money off of, uh, you know, yeah, basically uh, selling fish. And uh, Myers asked, um, or he says, in 1635, they passed a new decree, Holland did. It repeated the feudal nature of the rights granted and made strong additions. Did any aspiring adventurer seek to leap at a bound to the exalted position of patroonship? The terms were easy. All that he had to do was to found a colony of 48 adults, and he had, he had a liberal six years in which to do it. For his efforts, he was allowed even more extensive grants of land than under the Act of 1629. So complete were his powers of proprietorship that no one could approach within seven or eight miles of his jurisdiction without his express permission. His was really a principality. Over its bays, rivers, and islands, had it any as well as over the mainland, um, he was given command forever. The dispensation of justice was his exclusive right. He and he only was the court with summary powers of high, low, and middle jurisdiction, which were harshly or capriciously exercised. Not only did he impose sentence for violation of laws, but he himself ordained those laws, and they were laws which were always framed to coincide with his interests and personality. He had full authority to appoint officers and magistrates and enact laws, and finally he had the power of policing his domain and of making use of the titles and arms of his colonies. All these things he could do, quote, according to his will and pleasure. These absolute rights were to descend to his heirs and assigns. Um, so very Crowleyan, right? Uh, anything, uh, yeah, do as that, according to that will uh, yeah, and pleasure. Will. Just um, do what you want. Yeah, um, it is interesting to note, you know, this is like all under the auspices of like the, you know, the Netherlands. You know, this is all the Dutch establishment, the Dutch, the Dutch West India Company. Uh, it was mm -hmm. a little bit different, like, uh, in the sort of English domains. You know, they were kind of, like, at odds and sort of always worried about the advancement of the English colonies because they were mm -hmm. sort of, you know, butting heads and uh, trying to shore up their control in uh, the, on the American continent. And, and uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's interesting that at first, you know, the Dutch really had these 
the huge estates, you know, the, the patroon system, like, really blossomed as this massive feudal establishment, but it eventually did kind of fade away. Uh, New England it did after the, the American, it. Yeah. yeah, after the American Revolution. But the, but what really happened is they kind of became integrated into the kind of Anglo-American yeah. ruling class. Exactly. And I mean, uh, yeah. right England here, took my, over eventually. Yeah, yeah. But my, Myers, you know, he traces it basically. Uh, he says here, old world traders become feudal lords. And he said, you know, he, he points all this out because thus, at the beginning of settlement times, the basis was laid in law and custom of a landed aristocracy, or rather a group of entrenched autocrats along the banks of the Hudson, the shores of the ocean, and far inland. The theory then prevailed that the territory of the colonies extended westward to the Pacific. So, you know, last resort, ain't nothing new. From these patroons, this is very important, from these patroons and their lineal or collateral descendants issued many of the landed generations of families which, by reason of their wealth and power, proved themselves powerful factors in the economic and political history of the country. The sinister effects of this first great grasping of the land long permeated the whole fabric of society and were prominently seen before and after the revolution, especially in the third and fourth decades of the 18th century. The results, in fact, are traceable to this very day, even though laws and institutions are so greatly changed. Other colonies reflected the constant changes of government, ruling party or policy of England, and colonial companies chartered by England frequently forfeited their charters. But conditions in New Netherlands remained stable under Dutch rule, and the accumulation of great estates was intensified under English rule. It was in New York at that at that period the foremost colonial estates and the predominant private fortunes were mostly held. So basically, you know, he, he's right. As we mentioned with the Roosevelt family, they do extend not just to 1909, but to today, like, and they did become, like, wrapped up in what would become kind of our American ruling elite, and had this very, this uh, sense of uh, of nobility that in the Dutch case, I mean, was basically literal. That you know, this was their domain. That they had, you know, this land that they were entitled to all the resources that were under the ground, and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think what we see is that mentality never really goes away, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. He talks later on about the uh, sort of equivalent situation that existed in New England and then this transition of New York onto English control. He he writes uh, later on, you know, uh, describing uh, how the English... Well, I'll just start a little bit paragraph earlier. He says, uh, while this seizure, seizure of land was going on in New, New Netherlands, vast areas of New England were passing suddenly into the hands of a few men. These areas sometimes comprised what are now entire states and were often palpably obtained by fraud, collusion, trickery, or favoritism. The Puritan <laughs> influx into Massachusetts was an admixture of different occupations. Some were traders or merchants, others were mechanics. By far, the largest portion were cultivators of the soil, whom economic pressure, not less than religious persecution, had driven from England. To these, land was a paramount consideration. Uh, describing how the English tiller had been uh, expropriated from the soil, Wallace says, The ingenuity of lawyers and direct landlord legislation steadily increased the powers of great landowners and encroached upon the rights of the people, till at length the monstrous doctrine arose that a landless Englishman has no right whatever to enjoyment even of the unenclosed commons and heaths and the mountain and forest wastes of his native country, but is everywhere in the eye of the law a trespasser wherever he ventures off a public road or pathway. Yeah, this is the uh, whole mm -hmm. enclosure acts and, and everything. 
thing, which is a whole other yeah. thing. By the 16th century, the English peasantry had been evicted from even from the commons, which were turned into sheep walks by the impoverished barons to make money from Fle- the Flemish wool market. The land at home wrenched from them. The poor English immigrants ardently expected that in America land would be plentiful. They were bitterly disappointed. The various English companies, chartered by royal command with all-inclusive powers, despite the frequent opposition of Parliament, held the trade and land of the greater part of the colonies with a rigid monopoly. In the case of the New England Company, severe punishment was threatened to all who should encroach upon its rights. It also was freed from payment for 21 years and was relieved from taxes forever. Uh, The New England (laughs) colonies were carved out into a few colossal private estates. The example of the British nobility was emulated, but the chartered companies did not have to resort to the adroit, disingenuous, subterranean methods which the English land magnates used in perpetuating their seizure, as so graphically described by S.W. Thackeray in his work, The Land and the Community. The land in New England was taken over boldly and arbitrarily by the directors of the Plymouth Company, the most powerful of all the companies which exploited New England. The handful of men who participated in this division sustained with a high hand their claims and pretensions and augmented and forfeited them by every device. Uh, Sorry, fortified them by every device. Quite regardless of who the changing monarch was or what country ruled, these colonial magnates generally contrived to keep the power strong in their own hands. There might be a superficial show of changed conditions, an apparent infusion of democracy, but in reality the substance remained the same. This was nowhere more lucidly or strikingly illustrated than after New Netherlands passed into the control of the English and was renamed New York. Laws were decreed which seemed to bear the impress of justice and democracy. Monopoly was abolished. Every man was given the much-prized right of trading in furs and pelts, and the burger right was extended and its acquisition made easier. However well-intentioned these altered laws were, they turned out to be shallow delusions. Under English rule, the gifts of vast estates in New York were even greater than under Dutch rule, and beyond doubt were granted corruptly or by favoritism. Miles upon miles of land in New York, which had not been preempted, were brazenly given away by the royal governor Fletcher for bribes, and it was suspected, although not clearly proved, that he trafficked in estates in Pennsylvania during the time when, by royal order, he supplanted William Penn in the government of that province. From the evidence which has come down, it would appear that anyone who offered Fletcher his price could be transformed into a great vested landowner. But still, the people imagined they had a real democratic government. Had not, the, had not England established representative assemblies? These, with certain restrictions, alone had the power of lawmaking for the provinces. These representative bodies were supposed to rest upon the vote of the people, which vote, however, was determined by a strict property qualification. Yeah, so like you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, like right at the very beginning of this kind of a democratic, you know, uh, political process, whatever thing. Yeah, I feel like he's making a point. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you're supposed to read into that, like the uh, unfolding history of uh, the United States, like that the transition from New Netherland, which is very feudal reminiscent system to uh, English controlled and, you know, the transformation of New Netherlands to New York brought with it like this idea of representative assemblies and all these sort of mm-hmm. gestures at reform and things like yeah. that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and being, uh, you know, more rights for the people who toiled under had toiled under the patroons and the people, merchants who came there and everything to trade in furs. But actually it was completely like illusory. Uh, you know, as he says, what really happened was that apparently deprived of direct feudal power, the landed interests had no difficulty in retaining their lawmaking ascendancy by mm-hmm. getting control of the various provincial assemblies. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. yeah. I guess yeah. it was so in in some places it was uh, it was so offensive to the people that I think the New York Lieutenant Governor Cadwallader Colden in 1764 
wrote to the Lords of Trade at London how the land magnates had devised to set themselves up as the lawmaking class. He, he uh, said three of the large land grants contain provisions guaranteeing to each owner the privilege of sending a representative to the General Assembly. These landed proprietors, therefore, became hereditary uh, legislators. Quote, the owners of other great patents, being men of the greatest opulence in the several American counties where these tracts are, have sufficient influence to be perpetually elected for these counties. The General Assembly, then, of this province consists of the owners of these extravagant grants, the merchants of New York, the principal of principal of them, strongly connected with the owners of these great tracts by family interest, and of common farmers, which last are men easily deluded and led away with popular arguments of liberty and privileges. The proprietors of the great tracts are not only freed from the quit rents which the other landholders in the provinces pay, but by their influences in the assembly are freed from every other public tax on their lands. Um, and yeah, like Myers said, what Colden wrote of the landed class of New York was substantially true of all the other provinces. The small, powerful clique of great landowners had cunningly taken over to themselves the functions of government and diverted them to their own ends. First, the land was seized, and then it was declared exempt of taxation. So yeah, I mean, basically, uh, that's, yeah, the landowners kind of just swooped in and then yeah, quickly just like took over the representative government. Yeah, yeah I guess. Uh, uh, there's an amazing part. I, I assume that uh, you're going to recognize it when I start uh, reading it. Uh, it's mm-hmm. about uh, how the lords of the soil lived where he describes uh, Colonel Smith. You know, he Uh gives kind of a portrait. He says, uh, A glancing picture of one of these landed proprietors will show the manner in which they lived and what was then accounted their luxury. As one of the, quote, foremost men of his day, in the colonies, Colonel Smith lived in befitting style. This stern, bushy-eyed man who robbed the community of a vast tract of land and who, as chief justice, was inflexibly severe in dealing punishment to petty criminals and ever vigilant in upholding the rights of property, was lord of the manor of St. George, Suffolk County. The finest silk and lace covered his judicial person. His embroidered belts, costing uh, 110 pounds, at once attested his great wealth and high station. He had the extraordinary number of 104 silver buttons to adorn his clothing. When he walked, a heavy silver-headed cane supported him, and when he rode on a fa- and he rode on a fancy velvet saddle. His three swords were of the finest make. Occasionally, he affected a Turkish scimitar. Oh, yeah. Few watches in the colonies could compare with his massive silver watch. His table was embellished with heavy silver plate valued at 150 pounds, of which his coat of arms was engraved. On which his coat of arms was, was engraved. Twelve Negro slaves responded to his nod. He had a large corps of bounded apprentices and dependent laborers. His mansion looked down on twenty acres of wheat and twenty of corn, and as for his horses and cattle, they were the envy of the country. In his last year, thirty horses were his, fourteen oxen, sixty steers, forty-eight cows, and two bulls. He lived high, drank, swore, cheated, and administered justice. One of the best and most intimate descriptions of a somewhat contemporaneous landed magnet in the South is that of Robert Carter, a Virginia planter, by Philip Victor's, uh, Vickers Fithian, a tutor in Carter's family. Carter came to his estate uh, from his grandfather, whose land and other possessions were looked upon as so extensive that he was called King Carter. King Carter luxuriated in Nominee Hall, a great colonial mansion in Westmoreland County. 
It was built between 1725 and 1732 of brick covered with strong mortar, which imparted a perfectly white exterior, and was 76 feet long and 40 wide. The interior was one of unusual splendor for the time, such as only the very rich could afford. There were eight large rooms, one of which was a ballroom 30 feet long. Carter spent most of his leisure hours cultivating the study of law and music. His library contained 1,500 volumes and had a varied assortment of musical instruments. He was the owner of 60,000 acres of land spread over almost every county of Virginia, and he was the master of 600 slaves. The greater part of a prosperous ironworks near Baltimore was owned by him, and his mansion, uh, near his mansion he built a flour mill equipped to turn out 25,000 bushels of wheat a year. Carter was not the only one of the big planters, but one of the big capitalists of the age. All that he had to do was to exercise general supervision. His overseers saw to the running of his various industries. Like the other large landholders, he was one of the active governing class. As a member of the provincial council, he had, the great, he had great influence in the making of laws. He was a thorough gentleman, we are told, and took great care of his slaves and of his white laborers who were grouped in workhouses and little cottages within range of his mansion. Within his domain, he exercised a sort of benevolent despotism. He was one of the first few to see that chattel slavery could not compete in efficiency with white labor, and he reckoned that more money could be made from the white laborer, for whom no responsibility of shelter, clothing, food, and attendance had to be assumed, than from the Negro slave whose sickness, disability, or death entailed direct financial loss. Before his death, he emancipated a number of his slaves. This, in brief, is a rather flattering depiction of one of the conspicuously rich planters of the South. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what you're saying, where he, you know, there's the appearance of him emancipating his slaves, but he basically was of the opinion that he was actually losing money on his slaves compared to his indentured white laborers. That's what Uh, I'm saying is like they, these people, a lot of these early people that kind of, you know, looked that, that were not super staunch defenders of the chattel slavery system. Like they were against it, but for the most like sicko reasons, because they're like, wait, we could exploit actually people kind of better. And then we could always tell them like, Hey, you're not a slave. Like you have rights, which you don't really have. And then basically uh, screw you over like in a lot of more, more subtle ways. And you don't have a legal, or financial really obligation. You just have to give them enough to like not drop dead. But even if they do drop dead, you don't really lose money. You can just get another immigrant to come in and and replace them. So in a way, like, okay, that's actually interesting because if you think about a lot of the work that would fuel the industrial revolution, not to get totally gone on a side quest here, but you think about coal mining. And like one thing I had read about like the coal mines uh, in Pennsylvania in the late 1800s was that they had a higher casualty rate than being in the Union Army in the Civil War. A lot of people would die and get injured all the time. So, you know, it's one thing to pick cotton or to farm and things like that. Those aren't necessarily, like, incredibly dangerous jobs. But if you need a bunch of bodies to go down in, like, the dregs of, like, a freighter ship or dig coal out of the ground and you know a bunch of them are going to die then may or you know go out and build railroads and stuff or things like that like things where you're blowing things up on dynamite it's like sorcerer like everyone is just you know incredibly dangerous and if you kind of quote unquote own those workers and they get killed then you might be like actually reticent to send them into all these dangerous situations where there's going to be like a, like a high casualty rate because then you're losing money on everything you invested in this person that you, you know, view as property. You know what I'm you know what I mean? So in a way, mm-hmm. 
it's like simultaneously, like in in ob- in some very obvious aspects, it's like more humane to not do shadow slavery, but also it opens the door to just throwing bodies into a big dark hole in the earth and not really caring how many of them die and don't come back out because it's no loss to you, really. Like, you don't have to pay anything to their family. There's no labor laws. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the first labor union started as, like, uh, kind of fraternal support organizations for, like, the widows of, like, dead miners and stuff like that. They had to organize it themselves, basically, like an insurance fund, because the companies didn't give a shit. So, in a way, it's like, yeah, okay. That's why maybe we have to be reticent to, like, not not pat them on the back too hard, these people that had, like, comp- complicated views about slavery, you know, back in the 18th century or whatever, um, is that a lot of them ended up, the, the reason, a big driver of maybe why they they kind of broke with it and were willing to fight a civil war over stomping it out is because they had in mind this different system, which um, I think is, uh, is, is definitely better, but also it ain't exactly free <laughs> labor. It's not fully free. Yeah, you know? and also and it it's was like extremely a different, not the case. Like, yeah, I mean, that guy was, you know, a Southern planter who felt that white labor was more efficient. I mean, according to Myers, but I, that wasn't like a widely shared opinion. Yeah, like, as you said, you know, uh, the South is also very desirous to protect this institution for various reasons. But of course, yes. like, there also was like, huge, like, uh, you know, disdain for... Uh, in fact, it's funny because now, you know, people often point to being Anglo-Saxon as sort of a uh, a great thing. You know, that is what makes you white or whatever. But uh, Anglo-Saxons were often like sneered at uh, in, in the South, you know, uh, as sort of the poor whites uh, who are, are just as who are, you know, just as vile, uh, you know, rhetorically speaking, as uh, the their, their black slaves. Although, of course, like in terms of treatment. Yeah, there, like, there's definitely know, there's no d- definitely equation, like there, but, there, yeah. Bizarro levels of like intra northern European racism that are going on, and like also this like heavy class element as well, where like the mm. the new kind of landed sort of quasi gentry in the colonies really did look down at yeah like poor like even poor English immigrants like being English wasn't enough to like get your respect like if you didn't have property or if you were some kind of vagrant or something you were pretty much a nuisance and like not worth thinking about and you you can see it like in the kind of reflections of historians and like the art from the period that's like we really don't have a lot of good information on like what were like working people doing during like there, there's some stuff but you know compared to the volumes of like novels and writing and stuff that we have about what like the people at the very top of like the commercial and aristocratic class were doing at that time you know what i mean mm-hmm. Like it's it's yeah. it's kind of um it just shows like how little attention was there wasn't even kind of like how today you might have some kind of patronizing stuff about like I don't know like Nomadland or like about you know poor working class uh you know people going through stuff but you know back then there was really no pretense to like I don't give a fuck about those people like they are if they could be useful to me and they had very little right they they weren't shackled into slavery unless they were like an indentured servitude for a while but in general generally speaking they did not have any like political agency and they were completely almost at the mercy of these lords and these uh like wealthy planters and stuff there's also all kinds of rules of like terms of like living on somebody's estate where you could only buy like flour from their mill like you could only buy molasses from like their little shop like you'd see that actually come back later 
in the railroad era with like company stores and things like that. But that was also a thing from like very early on, kind of like getting the people working for you at both ends. Like you're both exploiting the labor and grossly underpaying them. And then you're also overcharging them for like the very products that like in some cases they're producing and you're selling it back to them at like a huge markup. So you really get them coming and going. And that seems to be something that was like a, like a tradition that was established very early on with this class of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This land was made for you and me. As I went walking, I saw a sign there. And on the sign it said no trespassing. But on the other side, it didn't say nothing. And that sign was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land From California To the New York Island From the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me In the shadows of the steeple I saw my people In the relief office I saw my people As they stood hungry I stood there asking, is this land really made for you and me? Nobody living can ever stop me as I go walking my freedom highway. Nobody living can make me turn back. This land was made for you and me This land is your land And this land is my land From California To the New York Island From Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me This land is your land And this land is my land From California do you want to mention something else? Uh, oh, yeah. No, I just wanted to say, uh, relative to that thing that I had mentioned earlier about uh, the idea of poor whites as being associated with Anglo-Saxons and uh, Southerners uh, sort of, uh, or sort of more aristocratic Southerners sort of looking down on them uh, through that association. Maybe primarily it was Northerners who were seen as being Saxons and the sort of Southern cavalier gentlemen saw themselves as being uh, Normans. There's actually this mm. uh, you know, interesting uh, essay that I had read earlier. I think it's a dissertation uh, called Cavaliers and Crackers, Landless Whites in the Mind of the Elite uh, Antebellum uh, South. Okay. And yeah, it's uh, interesting because actually the term cracker that we're so familiar with now, like, you know, that originates in the description of, you know, landless whites by Southern gentry. And this is an interesting quote from that. The elite Southern worldview placed race and biology at the center of their system of social organization. Southern political ideas took on the shape of the cavalier mythos, where biological characteristics, which were seen to be determinant of a man's character and morals, define someone's respective place in social hierarchy. Daniel Robinson Hundley's study of social, uh, Southern, Southern social relations claims that originally the South was populated by the best blood of Europe. 
In Virginia, the ancestors of the Southern gentlemen were chiefly English cavaliers, he explains. In Maryland, his ancestors were in the main Irish Catholics. In South Carolina, they were Huguenots, at least the better class of them, those dauntless chevaliers who, fleeing from the massacre of St. Bartholomew and the bloody persecutions of priests and tyrants, drained France of her most generous blood to found in the Western Hemisphere a race of heroes and patriots. But the intermingling of classes had led to the gradual decay of some of the old families. Immigrants and the descendants of peasant stock, who had entered the country largely as indentured servants, had muddled the blood, or sorry, muddied the blood of the southern gentlemen. So yeah, wow. not only did they try to, ex- yeah, uh, not only did they try to exclude poor whites like from their whole social world, but like later on, you know, especially after the Nat Turner Rebellion, they were really all about like sowing discord between black slaves and landless whites and sort of comparing them and in the same sort of way where that guy was like well you know actually uh landless whites are easier and then uh better workers you know people would actually say the opposite thing where they'd be like slaves are, are much better than these, these much landless more efficient whites yeah, yeah yeah exactly like, it's, uh, uh, like these yeah. people are deficient uh they're yeah uh, interesting so and like yeah of, and go part on. of it was like their actual racial ideology where like they had come to view landless whites as being not quite white really and like somehow yeah. biologically inferior but also like there was an aspect to it where they needed to pit the two against each other and encourage each one to see the other as in some way inferior. Yes, and exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, because as, they were as, scared you know, of what might happen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As, you know, as kind of like beautifully illustrated in the possibly sus uh, Bob Dylan song, Only Upon in Their Game, you know, like the rich, you know, the rich plantation under says the poor white man, you got more than the blacks, don't complain. You're better than them. You're born with white skin, etc. But yeah, no, at a certain point, like the political uh, liability of basically hating them and like not wanting to do miscegenation with uh, these like unworthy white people. Yeah, no, it was a it's a real bizarre phenomenon. It kind of puts them in clearer context of these people who are really kind of the truest embodiment of what we would probably call whiteness in America. It, like yeah. their, their original version of whiteness would, and it, we've seen that before. Like you could see it throughout American history, how different groups of like Europeans, it's not, it's not that they were on the level of people that were from Africa, um, but they weren't let fully into the white club either. It was like, there was some strong no, feelings and, it's very, and anxieties It's about interesting it. how like the ideology of whiteness changes so much. Like in that part that we just read, like they're like, you know, we're the English Cavaliers. They even said like, we're of Irish Catholic stock, and so we're better than these, like, immigrants and dungeon servants, which is, like, very, very different from other ideologies of whiteness that would gain dominance later. Like, we were just now having a recent controversy about how, like, white culture is Anglo-Saxon culture. But in Mm -hmm. the sort of Norman versus Saxon myth of the antebellum South, the Northerners would be like the Saxons and the Southerners would be aligned with the Normans. And it would be like this irreconcilable divide where these disgusting uh, Anglo-Saxons up north are trying to destroy our like inherent honor, you know, that we have as the, the is that, Saxons. Uh, is that the yeah. real Yankee cowboy dialectic? <laughs> is the, the, like well, these like feuding a, groups of the form- narcissism of small differences uh, blown up to like a class war scale? It's a form <laughs> of it. Not, it's super, yeah. 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 Like it, there, there it's is a, there, a, like, there's yeah. definitely a thing mm-hmm. kind of going on there. And 
And yeah, I mean, just like the narcissism of small differences, I think uh, can yeah. be very loud in these kind of groups like back then. And and also, yeah, I think it took time. I think it's it's a process and it's like still a process of crafting this sort of arbitrary term of like white, this category of whiteness, which you can see like really didn't even apply to people that didn't own property kind of at the time of the American Revolution. If we're really getting kind of like, oh, they have the full legal privileges that quote unquote citizens are supposed to have. That's kind of how I think that's definitely one definition of whiteness that you could sort of use or criteria of like, does somebody meet this? And it's like, oh, if you didn't own property, well, yeah, technically your skin was white, but then you didn't have really any political agency at all and you probably existed to some degree in like economic precarity both in the north and the south so they uh, and you know the but the the group that was white has jealously guarded the those gates and you know because i think it's a it's a crucial pillar in their economic dominance basically um which is kind of the driver of all of this at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, and in fact, like, you know, we were talking about how these uh, political systems were captured by white landowners. Like, in the early 19th century, there was actually suffrage for white men in, like, general, not even landowners. And the reason for that was because they were afraid of, like, they basically, because they were so racist, they are like, the slave revolts won't succeed unless white people like John Brown like Mm -hmm. instigate them, you know, like unless these poor whites get involved. So Mm -hmm. they were like, uh, then they, then they started getting even more radical with their, you know, racial rhetoric and being like, uh, no, you like these black people suck like here, like have the vote, which of course, like, you know, ultimately wasn't super meaningful, but helped like, you know, make them like, you know, no, you're, you're one of us. Like, you know, like, uh, once they became, a little bit more threatened by this possibility uh, after Nat Turner and things like that. And John exactly. Brown. So they're constantly yeah. playing with, uh, and I think they they do they do some serious work uh, as we go into the 19th century in terms of like psychologically uh, kind of surmounting that obstacle with like the white masses of like like you said like on the one hand like in the South like pitting the like you know black slaves and poor whites against each other um and then like in the north all kinds of ethnic uh kind of resentments and fears and anxieties uh you know basically played themselves out in complicated ways but you know i think going back to this uh or you know jumping back into this timeline here that myers is laying out so we have basically the american revolution which i think he describes as something that obviously had a lot of progressive rhetoric that was ultimately pretty disingenuous, I would say, given Mm. the people that were the vanguard of this revolution, even though the masses kind of participated in it, and that it was really driven by the kind of the landowning class and the merchant class and yeah the trading class most of all yeah the trading class most Um, of all so he he says uh let me see this is an interesting part yeah the nascent uh he says on 41 uh land continued to be the chief source of wealth of the rich until after the revolution the discriminative Mm -hmm. laws enacted by england had held down the progress of the trading class these laws overthrown the traders rose rapidly from a subordinate position to the supreme class and point of wealth no mm-hmm. close research into the pre-revolutionary currents and movements is necessary to understand that the revolution was brought about by the dissatisfied trading class as the only means of securing absolute freedom of trade. 
Notwithstanding the view often presented that it was an altruistic movement for the freedom of man, it was essentially an economic struggle fathered by the trading class and by a part of a landed interests. Admixed was a sincere aim to establish free, free political conditions. This, however, was not an aim for the benefit of all classes, but merely one for the better interests of the property class. The poverty-stricken soldiers who fought for their cause found after the war that the machinery of government was devised to shut out manhood suffrage and keep the power intact in the hands of the rich. Had it not been for radicals such as Jefferson, Payne, and others, it is doubtful whether such concessions as were made to the people would have been made. The long struggle in various states for manhood suffrage sufficiently attested the deliberate aim of the propertied interests to concentrate in their own hands and in that of a following favorable to them, the voting power of the government and of the state. So, yeah, but we just talked about what actually it took for manhood suffrage to even happen. But, uh, yeah, with mm-hmm. the, you know, and that it was totally self-interested. But with the success of the revolution, the trading class bounded to the first rank. Entail and primogeniture were abolished and the great estates gradually melted away. For more than a century and a half, the landed interests had dominated the social and political arena. As an acknowledged continuous organization, they ceased to exist. Great estates no longer passed unimpaired from generation to generation, surviving as a distinct entity throughout all changes. They perforce were partitioned among all the children, and through the vicissitudes of subsequent years, passed bit by bit into many hands. Altered laws caused a gradual disintegration in the case of individual holdings, but brought no change in instances of corporate ownership. The Trinity Corporation of New York City, for example, has held on to the vast estate which was given before the revolution, except such parts as it voluntarily has sold. Mm. Uh, yeah, and then he goes yeah, on that to pops you know, up talk about Van Rensselaer. And, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it basically, it, it almost like forced kind of like this wealth to go on the move, I would say. You know, basically, because primogeniture and these other kind of aspects of feudalism were formally abolished if you just kept it's like we we said earlier the whole like third cousins always like marrying each other every couple of generations it's like if you just let kind of um the you know the lineage kind of take its course and your fortune keeps getting divided and it's not if it's just sitting there it's just going to get kind of divvied up eventually it's going to and then it'll just blow away in the wind so you have to take the money that you have and you got to put it to war this is where money really i mean it already was capital you know i guess by by any definition but it's like the capital you got to stay moving and growing or you'll kind of die you'll wither or get taken over or something like that so it introduces i think this new that that's i think a turning point where you see one the the dominance of the trading class come up in uh, particularly you know first in boston but then particularly in new york uh, in the early, yeah. you know, uh, 1800s. And, uh, the, uh, but also a kind of synergy because like these families, obviously, like we mentioned, like the Roosevelt's, all these other people, like they, they stuck around and they did sit on the boards of corporations and stuff. Like the Trinity Corporation ended up being instrumental later on to buy a bunch of land, like shoreline land on Manhattan Island that ended up being worth like exponentially more than it was worth when they bought it. But like they did it through kind of like shell company of this this church, basically. There was the Trinity Church down there on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so like the, the, you, they had to start coming up with new, cre- I guess, creative ways of accumulating wealth to maintain what they already had. And the way to do that pretty much at this point was, well, he goes through the two things. One is like real estate acquisition, 
which is sort of different than being a feudal lord within a state. But first, the thing that really kickstarts it is like trading, right? Yeah. Like the well, traders. Like the traders and they were like there are definitely some who bridged the gap between the two, but there was like a tension that emerged where the traders basically kind of had to slowly, gradually usurp the landed aristocrats. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, he has this great line where he says, you know, the the lordly, leisurely environment of the old landed class have been supplanted by feverish trading and industrial activity, which imposed upon society its own newer standards. You know. A few hundred thousand dollars no longer was a summit of a great fortune. The age of the millionaire had come. Mm-hmm. And so this was like the emergence of these merchants as uh, the, yeah, exactly as you said, like the most powerful uh, class in society or the, the concentration of wealth with them. Uh, and they basically, yeah, they, they couldn't really tangle at first with the aristocracy themselves. So what they did basically was exploit others like they exploited yeah. laborers uh and mm-hmm. through that they slowly had to sort of uh move in on the the feudal tenures and the land that the 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 gentry possessed yes yes and also the yeah. one thing that they all, a lot of them did and when we when we get into uh, john jacob astor soon he's he typifies this but a lot of them basically went out and thought like I need to go accumulate something and one of one of the most profitable commodities at that time was furs right so a lot mm-hmm. of these yeah. guys kind of ended up going out to like a little bit w- what would today probably be like out as far as like the Mississippi River and uh in places where native americans were still living and they would trade furs with them and stuff, or they would found a company to send out agents to like go get these furs. And this is a theme that definitely comes up again and again. A lot of people kind of made their primary accumulated wealth off of, um, let's see, the way he describes it is, well, he's talking about the trader's methods here, okay, in the early 19th century. And he said, uh, by one means or another, some of the New York merchants of the period attained a standing in point of wealth equal to not a few of the land magnates. And, uh, yeah, William Lawrence of Flushing, Long Island, was a man of great wealth and social standing. Like the rest of his class, he affected to despise the merchant class. While the landed men often spent much of their time carousing, hunting, gambling, and dispersing their money, the merchants were hawk-eyed alert for every opportunity to gather in money. They wasted no time in frivolous pursuits, had no use for sentiment or scruples, saved money in infinitesimal ways, and thought and dreamed of nothing but business. It sounds like J. Paul Getty, honestly. But here we go. So... Throughout the colonies, not excepting Pennsylvania, it was the general practice of the merchants and traders to take advantage of the Indians by cunning and treacherous methods. The agents of the chartered companies and the landowners first started the trick of getting the Indians drunk and then obtaining, for almost nothing, the furs that they had gathered for a couple of bottles of rum, a blanket, or an axe. After the charters of the companies were annulled or expired, the landgraves kept up the practice and the merchants improved on it in various ingenious ways. The Indians, says Felt, were ever ready to give up their furs for knives, hatchets, beads, blankets, and especially were anxious to obtain tobacco, guns, powder, shot, and strong water, the latter being a powerful instrument enabling the cunning trader to perpetuate the grossest frauds. Immense quantities of furs were shipped to Europe at a great profit. And I guess, you know, in New York, there were severe laws against Indians who got drunk, 
And in Massachusetts colony, an Indian found drunk was subject to a fine of 10 shillings or whipping at the discretion of the magistrate. As to the whites who, for purposes of gain, got the Indians drunk, the law was strangely inactive. Everyone knew that drink might incite the Indians to uprisings and imperil the lives of men, women, and children. I mean, uh, 1909. Um... But the considerations of trade were stronger than even the instinct of self-preservation, and the practice went on, not infrequently resulting in the butchery of innocent white victims and in great cost and suspense to the whole community. Strict laws which pronounced penalties for profaneness and for not attending church connived at the systematic defrauding and swindling of the Indians and of land and furs. Two strong considerations were held to justify this. The first was that the Indians were heathen and must give way to civilization, that they were fair prey. The demands of trade upon which the colonies flourished was the second. The fact that was that the code of the trading class was everywhere gradually becoming the dominant one, even breaking down the austere, almost ascetic, Puritan moral professions. Among the common people, those who were ordinary wage laborers, the methods of the rich were looked upon with suspicion and en- enmity, and there was a prevalent consciousness that wealth was being amassed by one-sided laws and fraud. Some of the noted sea pirates of the age made this their strong justification for preying upon commerce. By the way, uh, the Captain Bellamy's 1717 speech to Captain Bear of Boston, whose sloop he had just sunk and rifled, uh, I think I just had to read it real quick. <laughs> it's kind of like critical okay, support for Captain right. Bellamy. Uh, he says, um, I'm sorry I- I'm sorry that they, his crew, won't let you have your sloop again, for I scorn to do anyone a mischief when it is not for my advantage. Damn the sloop. We must sink her, and she might be of use to you. Though you are a sneaking puppy, and so are all those I who will submit to the governor. I love they call people puppy in the 19th century. Oh, you puppy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, yeah. Though you are a sneaking yeah. puppy, and so are all those who submit to, to be governed by laws which rich men have made for their own security. I wanted the accent. For the cowardly whelps yeah. have not the courage otherwise to defend what they get by their knavery. But damn ye altogether. Damn them for a pack of crafty rascals, and ye serve them for a parcel of hen-hearted numbskulls. They vilify us, the scoundrels who, when there is only this difference, they rob the poor under cover of law, forsooth, and we plunder the rich under protection of our own courage. Had you better not make one of us than sneak after these villains for employment. Bear refused and was put ashore. I guess he said, like, like you want to work yeah. for me? Um, yeah, so uh, from the lives and bloody exploits of the most noted pirates. Uh, so, you know, Captain Bellamy could see it back then that y'all are pirates too. You just use the law to... You know, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, ain't nothing new. I wonder if that is like a real thing. Uh, uh, yeah, I wonder sometimes about these quotes attributed to like uh, Native Americans and pirates, like in some of these sure. old accounts. <laughs> like, are they just being used like uh, to make a rhetorical point? But yeah, I mean, it's yeah. an awesome uh, speech. It could have been a fancy. Yeah, uh, yeah. He definitely uh, talks a lot about uh, piracy and the you know uh, importance of piracy within the shipping economy. And yeah, you know the thing that we all learn bas- basically in elementary school that you know the mercantile ch- uh, ch- or the sort of naval trade, the uh, the shipping trade uh, of the colonies. Like they basically were like, why can't we just? load up our ships when we take all our goods to Britain to sell them there. Why can't we load, load them, them up? Back with and yeah, exactly. And with then slaves. sell what we have 
yes. yeah, exactly, with slaves, and then sell no, them. No, literally, uh, the yeah, he, sa- yeah. he says exactly. right here that, you know, like the, the laws, the judge who enforces them in the spirit of the age reflected not so much the morality of the people as their trading necessities. And, you know, he talks about how, like, in the churches, the colonists prayed to God as the father of all men and showed great humility. But in actual practice, the property men recognized no such thing as equality and dispensed with humility. The merchants imitated in a small way the seniorial pretensions of the land nabobs. Few merchants there who did not deal in Negro slaves, and few also were there who did not have a bonded laborer or two, whose labor they monopolized, and whose career was their property for a long term of years. Limited bondage called apprenticeship, you know, was general. And so, yeah, basically that's an important distinction also for, you know, I guess, I don't know, all the Hamilton, John Adams fans out there of all these Boston merchants who, you know, we can, it's maybe nice and, and feels good to think that the Yankees, well, at least they were anti-slavery, but all the wealthiest merchants in Boston were absolutely making money off the slave trade and the slave economy. So, you yeah. know, despite what they might have, you know, personally felt or protested, these systems were, while they were different, they were absolutely interacting with one another. So, you know, and, and for that's also interesting to think about in terms of places like Yale, which I think maybe we've mentioned a little bit before, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, of the transition from all of these first kind of landed families and maybe merchant families in New England, they were sending their sons to Yale to become preachers, like Puritan ministers, right, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And then something starts to change after the American Revolution and going into the 19th century where you start sending your children to Yale to get into business and like not just any business, yeah. but like the high society business to socially connect with these other people and learn the, the, you know, the watchwords and the behaviors and things to basically kind of groom you into joining the ruling class. And it becomes much more about commerce than about yeah. the puritanical you know, justification. It. But it's the same entitlement still. It still has a Calvinist yeah, certainty I, to it. It's interesting that, yeah, I'm kind of like been tracking the whole like sale uh, issue through some of this book because it is interesting to consider like the Robert Califf uh, Cotton mm. Mather dispute through the lens yeah. of merchants versus like landed gentry and clergy. You know, like, yeah, Mather would be one of those people who went to Harvard uh, when it was mostly like a theological school, you know, yeah. but yeah, but Califf, you know, and his acolytes later on, mm-hmm. uh, they were <laughs> like big, you know, they were merchants. They were real, yeah. you know, they were really into to commerce and uh, Califf represented himself as a as a merchant or a wool merchant, you know, so he, yeah. yeah and he, I wonder yeah. if any of his, his ships brought back some slaves, you know, when they, he sent those uh, you know, textiles over to Britain or whatever. Maybe, maybe not, but yeah, I don't know, you know if he was a successful enough merchant to be dealing in slaves, but maybe, uh, it's entirely possible. I mean, it does say that he attended, uh, one of England's, uh, dissenting academies. So, you know, isn't that what the Southern, uh, gentry said that they were, you know, uh, produced from that. You know, so I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, you I mean, yeah. So. Caleb uh, went to a, a, yeah, yeah. He did. Yeah. One of the um, dissenting academies. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then I don't know, like I think later, uh, Myers compares the, act, the, the financial activities of a lot of these guys to alchemy literally. And I think that, mm. mm, I don't know, you oh, know, because so much of this, like I like the, the reason the thing yeah, like when we get to Astor, we'll, we'll get more into detail about the dealings with, uh, the, I guess, uh, we'll call them American Indians for lack of a better term because that's what Myers calls them throughout the book. But the really like systematic level of cheating people and basically like 
hoisting alcohol on them and then screwing them over and just the kind of arbitrage of basically ripping somebody off by trading, you know, for furs that you can fetch a high price for. It's very extreme. And the amount of super profits they were able to kind of reap from basically fraud and tricking people and um, was almost on an industrial scale even before the Industrial Revolution. It was the way that, um, you know, like people would just take like they would like claims like huge swaths of New Hampshire and say that like all of the timber belongs to us now. Yeah, uh, yeah. it says here, sharp traders easily got the advantage of Indians and landowners in buying the privilege of cutting timber in, yeah, in some cases, particularly in New Hampshire, the timber was simply taken without leave. The word was passed that force was as good as force, fraud as good as fraud. A lot of people would just go do stuff and then be like, what, are you going to stop me? And then it would just become accepted and legal, basically, you know, or you'd pay off the right amount of people and et cetera, et cetera. Just, so, to, yeah. uh, just to correct myself, I guess the Northerners were the ones who were seen as being like the descendants of the Roundheads, and the Southerners saw themselves as being the descendants of the aristocracy, of course, and the, the monarchists. So I guess that came Oh, okay, okay. Up. But I'm not, that, that I'm not abandoning it. I'm not abandoning yeah, it. It, well, it, it, sense. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of interesting yeah. to think about that because they were like religious, yeah. more like religious schismatics in the North. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Hmm. interesting. So, okay, we, we got in the shipping thing. It's worth noting, by the way, Myers says that many of the members of the Continental Congress were shipping merchants or they had inherited their fortunes from rich shippers such as Samuel Adams, uh, John Hancock, and um, a couple other uh, big guys, um, Francis Lewis, like people from both the North and the South. And I guess the revolution had disrupted and almost destroyed the colonial shipping industry and trade wasn't very uh, active. But here's a Boston Brahmin. George Cabot of Boston was the son of an opulent ship owner. I think even like Henry Cabot Lodge is, is that 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 Cabot family. Yeah. And right, yeah, yeah, so also this Salem is an example. Connection. Yeah. Oh, George really? Cabot. The Cabot. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So during the revolution, yeah. George with his brother swept the coast with 20 privateers carrying 16 to 20 guns each. For 4 or 5 years their booty was rich and heavy, but during uh, toward the end of the war, British gunboats swooped on most of their craft and the brothers lost heavily. So they're literally just like being pirates during the war and <laughs> like robbing ships. Um, mm-hmm. and then George subsequently became a United States senator um <laughs> cool so yeah like like a well like a rich kid like going out being a pirate to like make more money i guess is like literally what he was doing yeah so he got into all kinds of businesses uh from that became one of the towering rich men of the day and he left a ton of money to his son it goes through some other yeah like joseph peabody who i think is that what like the peabody award is related to that family I don't know if the Peabody Award is named for Joseph Peabody the Merchant. Well, no, uh, not, not his, but like one of his descendants, basically. I don't know. I, I don't know what the, who the Peabody Award is named for. Hmm. I assume it, it was. It seem a- like that family eventually had a connection to Isabella Stewart Gardner, who did do a lot of sort of philanthropy and that type of thing. So oh, yeah, philanthropist maybe. George Peabody and... Yeah, so I assume George. I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna double check. But um, oh well, yeah, he was born in 1795 in South Parish, Danvers, Massachusetts. So I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he was he was in the business of dry goods and then banking. He moved to London, where he became the most noted American banker and helped establish the young country's international credit. Oh, my God. Wow. Having no son of his own to whom he could pass on his business, Peabody took on Junius Spencer Morgan as a partner in 1854, and their joint business would go on to become J.P. Morgan and Company. 
Okay. Wow. So yeah, literally J.P. Morgan uh, literally came back to uh, but yeah is this he character to that original Peabody. Yeah, he had uh, Puritan ancestors in Massachusetts. That's where he was born in 1795. I don't know if he was literally. I don't know. Uh, his father was Thomas Peabody. So I mean, he's from that extended family, basically, and was mm-hmm. grew up wealthy, like a wealthy merchant family. Yeah, I actually did not yeah. know that that the the Peabodys. And the J.P. Morgan kind of family were intimately. Uh, yeah, they literally uh, fused. Literally, uh, yeah, they literally fused. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And was also a big. Uh, this guy was a big philanthropist. You know, in in the tradition of Johns Hopkins, Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, and Bill Gates. So you know, you could see yeah. like this also stretches all the way from to today. Salem. The- they're from yep. Danvers, where like a lot of the Salem witch trials actually happen. But yeah, mm. yeah, no, he he lived in Salem his whole life. Apparently, this uh, Joseph Peabody did. So yeah, so it says some of his exploits sailing around the world, which are narrated by George Atkinson Ward and Hunt's L- Lives of American Merchants, were thrilling enough to have found a deserved place in a gory novel. So you know, he 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 really he went around to St. Petersburg, the West Indies. Uh, Calcutta, Sumatra, all kinds of other places, and made a ton of money, and uh, was very wealthy, and his ancestors give out journalism awards today, and uh, founded J.P. Morgan, so that's cool. And, yeah, so a lot of these people did make their original capital from, like, privateering. Just look, I, I always wanted, like, the exact definition of being a privateer. Is that basically Privateer mean, is basically, like, a licensed pirate, pretty much. Like a mercenary, like a pirate yeah. who someone, yeah, gives permission to, like, Sir Francis Drake or whatever, you know? They're, like, basically... Yeah, gotcha. pirates who have, okay. are under the auspices of the crown or something like that. Yeah. And then a lot of these people also got into, there are people like Thomas Russell, who I was trying to look up if they were connected to the Russell Trust, which I think was the force behind founding Skull and Bones. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the the group that runs Skull and Bones, which is, you know, in 1856, William Huntington Russell was the namesake. And where was he from? Middletown, Connecticut. I don't know if he's related to Thomas Russell. Uh, no, he's from several old New England families. So I believe, yes, uh, Russell and Company in 1823, which specialized in trading to China. And I think there's an opium connection with that in the early 19th century. Anyways, that's just an example of like somebody from like this kind of New England merchant like shipping family that would like the people like that would go on to found Skull and Bones in the mid 1800s. And uh, let's see, there was Samuel Butler and let's see, Cyrus, uh, yeah, Cyrus Butler. And he was, I guess, the richest man in New York who did a lot of privateering and uh, ended with a a few million dollars, which I guess was a pretty big deal um, back then. Like like the word millionaire was totally foreign to the lexicon, I think, until the mid 1800s, they said. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. but... Yeah, so then, you know, they would really, I don't know, they'd be able to, like, rip off people, you know, basically, like, one shipment of plain glass tumblers that cost less than 1000 sold for 12000 in the Isle of France and things like that. So you could really, like, jack up the prices on things, kind of rip people off and do all that. And so they got very wealthy and, like, their power kind of increased and... I guess yeah um, it's the history of like the role of Massachusetts and of New England like at this period when they were uh you know the like fishing and the importance of fishing and whaling you know there's a huge history like you know if you go to Salem now like they 
I obviously have a bunch of, like, witch museums and things like that, but they also have a ton of, like, pirate history uh, attractions and stuff, you know, <laughs> because it was also, like, mm. a hub for, like, that stuff, you know, like, for piracy and for shipping and, and, and uh, merchant, uh, you know, naval trading and, uh, you know, that, that type of stuff. It's, it's very interesting, like, the, the role that, that they played. Uh, and of course, like the, the role that all of that played in the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. For instance, like uh, Myers writes, uh, along with the fisheries, considerable wealth was extracted in New England as elsewhere in the colony from the shipment of timber. Sharp traders easily got the advantage of Indians and landowners in buying the privilege of cutting timber. In some mm-hmm. cases, particularly in New Hampshire, which Allen claimed to own, the timber was simply taken without leave. So this is an example of where... It was yeah, saying, yeah. You know, that, I read that uh, quote like, a minute ago. Yeah, that was... Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that was uh, pretty much... Yeah, they would uh, start extracting these resources. Yeah, a lot of fishing. I guess there's still a codfish on the seal of the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. Because it was so uh, central. That's all super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but there, um, are, there but, were these, yeah, like, the, onerous tariffs that were really to protect, like, the British East India Company and stuff like that that basically made it unprofitable to compete with British manufacturers and British industry, which was like a huge, you know, spur. That's why Boston was like such a hotbed of radicalism, like anti-royal radicalism. And yeah, exactly. The Boston Tea Party and all that. Again, dressing up right. like Native and Americans. Also dressed up like Native Americans. Pastime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a big. Yeah, um, they loved it. Right. No, but it's uh, yeah, it's interesting how like the British trading class had to like try to curb that. Like what they talk about in that same passage uh, that you mentioned, like of the the whale fishery uh, and the incredible profits that they made from whaling. Oh, yeah. uh, like from sperm sperm whale uh, fishing, like you know, in Moby Dick and everything, which of course is like mm-hmm. a huge uh, you know aspect of American culture now. Uh, in fact, right? I think I, New Bedford, yeah. Mass is like still like a you know a town that's like all about uh, Moby Dick. But so basically, like the you know the taxes and the uh, restrictions on sea trade were kind of like the main reason why the Revolutionary War broke out. And they were able to clean house after, you know, after the country was established. Another thing that I I actually didn't quite know that happened right at the, you know, after the founding of the U.S. in 1793 was uh, Whitney's invention of, it was Eli Whitney, right? The invention of the cotton Mm -hmm. gin, which I guess had, it was a huge stimulus to cotton growing in the South. And, of course, benefited the ship owners in New England because all of a sudden there was way more cotton to basically export. And so, you know, yeah. their trade I think we mentioned increased. this in our, yeah, in our episode about uh, the uh, changing images of man. We mentioned how, you know, because in that book oh. they were like, well, you know, when there's more technology that reduces the amount of labor, then uh, you, we won't need to have slaves like ancient Greece, so we can have ancient Greek society, but with robot slaves. But you know, as we all <laughs> know, slow. like the cotton gin accelerated like the abuses of slavery and exacerbated yes. them rather than alleviating them at all. Yeah, uh, and the yeah. other, but the thing I, I actually didn't quite know because I knew the Whitney family. We brought up the Whitney family before; they're incredibly powerful right, yeah. and wealthy mm-hmm. and connected to everybody. But uh, but Myers wrote like it might be thought parenthetically that Whitney himself should have made a surpassing fortune from an invention which brought millions of dollars to planners and traders. 
But his inventive ability and perseverance, at least in his creation of the cotton gin, brought him little more than a multitude of infringements upon his patent, refusals to pay him, and vexatious and expensive litigation to sustain his rights. In despair, he turned in 1808 to the manufacture in New Haven of firearms for the government, and from this business managed to get a fortune. So, like, he actually, I didn't realize this, that he almost had, like, the cotton gin, like, stolen from him by all these greedy planters and traders and stuff and ended up getting caught in court and all these lawsuits and then he went and I want to say did he found Colt in Hartford Connecticut? I don't know. Let me see what he ended up because he does mention that he went and made a fortune from guns. It's very bizarre if you go to his Wikipedia page it doesn't even say anything about guns it just says he invented the cotton gin He he went to Yale too by the way so you know Hmm. I don't know. So he was actually a you know Yankee, New Englander. Yeah, there was a huge there. estate. There's a huge Whitney estate like near where I grew up uh, in New York. And actually, I think that it was like the site for like some negotiations between the Polisario Front and Mer- the government of Morocco at some point about hmm. the Western Sahara. Like it's bizarre, but yeah, it was just this weird gigantic estate that we would sometimes see like driving around. I'm just, I guess he, he invented uh, interchangeable machine parts that I guess were, I think, very uh, instrumental in like modern firearm production and like advancing beyond muskets. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it, it is weird that, uh, yeah, apparently, this, like, even this Wikipedia article, mm, history can be revised, can it? You know, because it talks about how he got a contract with the War Department and stuff, but it was like, oh, you know, like, it, it, his thing didn't do very well, his gun business. Well, then how did he get so wealthy if he also got ripped off for the cotton gin? I don't know. I guess it says, despite his humble origins, Whitney was keenly aware of the value of social and political connections. In building his arms business, he took full advantage of the access that his status as Yale alumnus gave him to other well-placed graduates, such as Oliver Wolcott Jr., Secretary of the Treasury, class of 1778, and James Hillhouse, a New Haven developer and political leader. And then he married Jonathan Edwards' granddaughter in 1817, the daughter of Pierpont Edwards, who I believe was like, isn't it, you know, Pierpont Morgan? Didn't they marry into the Morgan family yeah, eventually? Yeah, that would make sense. Uh, very tied to Connecticut's ruling elite and first cousin of Yale's president, Timothy Dwight, the, the state's leading federalist. Uh, so basically, yeah, I don't know. But it's very bizarre in this whole article. They won't, like, say what his gun company was unless I'm kind of mi- missing it here and that he made a lot of money off of it. Somebody's got something wrong or, you know what I mean? Like, maybe yeah. he, yeah, he did have a firearms factory, but apparently he made 10,000 muskets. It, well, it, I guess his, it just... Uh, f- gun uh, enterprise didn't work out. didn't mean that he ha- didn't have such wealth from, from other places. It's true. He uh, might have actually, yeah, maybe he licensed his, uh, his like, interchangeable parts. The, the idea actually predated him, but he promoted and popularized it. Whatever. Uh, it's parenthetical. But just once again, you see, like, wow, like, how tightly interwoven all these people are. And they're even, it's funny, though, that, like, for all the litany of crimes that Myers lists in, you know, the, this whole saga that, like, the one time somebody does invent, like, a, a kind of a radical technology that, you know, massively produces, you know, increases productivity and blah, blah, blah. Like, it really is kind of a game-changing uh, invention, 
you know, whatever you mm-hmm. want to say about how it was used, that they just, like, steal it from him <laughs> and, like, don't pay. It's yeah. almost like they're hostile to that. Like, fuck you for actually creating something. Like, you're not going to get rewarded for this. You're only going to get rewarded. It's almost like a little shaitanic or something. Like, the people at Yale mm-hmm. are like, that's not satanic. Well, it, it kind of is satanic because, it, it, like you said, it increased the kind of the the workflow and, like, some of the worst aspects of, like, Chattel's slavery. But then they were like, you need to go make, like, better guns for us so that we can go conquer the West. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. Everyone just seems to be swimming in some dark vibes, and they're all just, like, stealing things. Okay, so, yeah, just to summarize this part, then I think it maybe it's Aster time. We'll, we'll just talk about Aster for the rest of the time. Does that mm-hmm. sound good? Yeah, so. Yeah, that sounds good. After he gives all these, like, the guy who founded Brown University, Nicholas Brown, was, like, a, a, a privateer and, and did all the shipping stuff. Everybody, basically, in New England was just shipping all the time, making tons of money. And he says it is quite needless, however, to give further instances in support of the statement that nearly all the large active fortunes of the latter part of the 18th and early period of the 19th century came from the shipping trade and were mainly concentrated in New England. The proceeds of these fortunes frequently were put into factories, canals, turnpikes, and later into railroads telegraph lines, and express companies. Seldom, however, has the money thus employed really gone to the descendants of the men who amassed it, but has since passed over to men who, by superior cunning, have contrived to get the wealth into their own hands. This statement is an anticipation of facts that will be more cognate in subsequent chapters, but may be appropriately referred to here. There were some exceptions to the general condition of the large fortunes from shipping being compactly held in New England, and he, I guess, mentions a Quaker, Thomas Pym Cope from Philadelphia, that uh, did shipping and, like, then kind of folded it into canal and railroad enterprises. But he says, you know, at the end of the day, lest we forget, obviously these millionaires created nothing except the enterprise of distributing products made by the toil and skill of millions of workers the world over. But while the workers made these products their sole share was meager wages, barely sufficient to sustain the ordinary demands of life. Moreover, the workers of one country were compelled to pay exorbitant prices for the goods turned out by the workers of other countries. The shippers who stood as middlemen between the workers of the different countries reaped the great rewards. Nevertheless, it should not be overlooked that the shippers played their distinct and useful part in their time and age, the spirit of which was intensely ultra-competitive and individualistic in the most sordid sense. I think people probably get the idea with... um, Mm -hmm with the shipping thing. Oh, hmm, this is interesting. Mm. Okay, I'll, be able to, I'll just read a couple uh, things leading into Aster here. The merchants, the pillars of society, Myers writes. The most infamous frauds were carried on, and so dominant were the trader standards that these frauds passed as legitimate business methods. The very men who profited by them were the mainstays of churches, and not only that, but they were the very same men who formed the various self-constituted committees which demanded severe laws against paupers and petty criminals. Uh, Tell me if this sounds a little familiar. A study of the names of the men, for instance, who comprised the New York Society for the Prevention of Pauperism, 1818 to 1823, shows that nearly all of them were shippers or merchants who participated in the current commercial frauds. Yet this was the class that sat in judgment upon the poverty of the people and the acts of poor criminals and which dictated laws to legislatures and to Congress. Gerard and Astor were the supreme products of this system. They did in a greater way what others did in a lesser way. As a consequence, their careers were fairly well illumined. The envious attacks of their competitors ascribed their success to hard-hearted and ignoble qualities, while their admirers heaped upon them tributes of praise for their extraordinary genius. 
both sets exaggerated. Their success in garnering millions was merely an abnormal manifestation of an ambition prevalent among the trading class. Their methods were an adroit refinement of methods which were common. The game was one in which, while fortunes were being amassed, masses of people were thrown into the direst poverty, and their lives were attended by injustice and suffering. In this game, a large company of eminent merchants played. Gerard and Astor were peers in the playing, and got away with the greater share of the stakes. Now, Okay, just rewind for a second back to the uh, the New York Society for the Prevention of Pauperism. That's uh, <laughs> does that remind you of maybe uh, a couple yeah. you know maybe combating anti silk topper discriminatory yeah, violence like in Chicago? Kind of Poppers would not like silk toppers, probably. Yeah, they would, and you know uh, the Chicago Crime Commission, the Secret Six. There seems to be this kind of. I mean, we postulated that like this kind of a uh, low-key Batman mentality maybe went back as far as the <laughs> 1920s, but I think what Myers is saying right here is that it goes way back to the 1820s, and you know, basically like the most powerful like merchants and in, like industrialists basically were like obsessed with like getting these sicko anti silk topper scumbags off the fucking streets. Basically, they were yeah. all wanted to be Cobra and basically, but while they were the biggest, it's funny, like being a pauper isn't even like an aggressive crime. You're just begging for like, right? I mean, unless the, the, yeah. the connotation was different back then, but it's not like, you know, not even, not even vagrancy or banditry. It's just, uh, or, you know, what was it in Chicago? The Commerce Citizens Committee for Prevention of Crime. Yeah. You, but you basically yeah, have these like, it's crime like it's, yeah, as you mentioned, like debtors prisons were like rampant. Like it's really amazing. Like it gets really amazing later on. Like it says, uh, if a man were absolutely destitute and took to theft as the only means of warding off starvation for himself or his family, the whole force of law at once descended heavily upon him. In New York State, the law decreed a grand larceny to steal the value of $25. In other states, the statutes were equally severe. For stealing $25 worth of anything, the penalty was three years in prison at hard labor. The unfortunate was usually put in the convict chain gang and forced to work along the roads. Street begging was prohibited by drastic laws. Poverty was substantially a crime. The moment a propertyless person stole, the assumption at once was that he was prima facie a criminal. But let the powerful property man steal, and the government at once refused to see the criminal intent. If he were prosecuted, the usual outcome was that he never went to jail. Hundreds of specific instances could be given to prove this. One of the most noted of these was that of Samuel Swartwout, who was a collector of the Port of New York for a considerable period and who at the same time was financier and large land speculation uh, promoter, a large land speculation promoter. Mm -hmm. It came out in 1838 that he had stolen the enormous sum of one million million twenty two what two hundred and twenty two thousand uh seven hundred and five dollars and sixty nine cents from the government which money he had used in his schemes he was a fugitive from justice for a time but upon his return was looked upon extenuatingly as the victim of circumstances and he never languished in jail Money was wow. the standard of everything. The property person could commit any kind of crime short of murder and could at once get free on bail. But what happened to the accused who was poor? Here is a contemporaneous description of one of the prisons of the period. In Bridewell, white females of every grade of character, from the innocent who is in the end acquitted down to the basest wretch that ever disgraced the refuges of prostitution, are crowded into the same abandoned abode. With the white male prisons, the case is little altered. And so it is with the colored prisoners of both sexes. Sorry. Uh, hundreds are taken up and sent to these places who, after remaining frequently several weeks, are found to be innocent of the crime alleged and are then let loose upon the community. Let loose upon the community. 
Does not this clause in itself convey the convey volumes of significance of the attitude of the property interests, even when banded together in a pseudo charitable enterprise toward the property stricken? While thus the charitable societies were holding up the destitute to scorn and contumely as outcasts and were loftily lecturing down to the poor on the evils of intemperance and gambling, practices which were astoundingly prevalent among the rich, at no time did they make any attempt to alter laws so glaringly unjust that they practically made poverty a distinct crime subject to long terms of imprisonment. For instance, if a rich man were assaulted and made a complaint, all that he had to do was to give bail to ensure his appearance as a witness. But if a poor man or woman were cheated or assaulted and could not give bail to ensure his or her appearance at the trial as a complaining witness, the law compelled the authorities to lock up that man or woman in prison. That is insane. Yeah. (laughs) The debates in the New York Constitutional Convention of 1846, numerous cases uh, were cited of this continuing barbarity in New York, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and other states. In Maryland, a young woman was assaulted and preferred criminal charges. She could not give bail, and she was locked up for 18 months as a detained witness. This was but one instance in thousands of similar cases. So he goes on to talk about apprentices. Like, if you were an apprentice laborer, so for you to like oh, quit yeah. being an apprentice laborer and like leave your master, you had like basically no rights under the law. And yeah. they would put out notices that were like fugitive apprentice notices. Like yeah. uh, this he he excerpts one that's like ran away from the subscriber, an apprentice boy named William Rusties, about eighteen years and three months old, by trade a house carpenter, of a dark complexion, dark eyebrows, black eyes and black hair, about five feet eight inches high, his dress unknown as he took with him different kinds of clothes. The above reward will be paid to any person that will secure him in jail and return him to his master. So, like, people would be running away from, like, their apprenticeships, and they would, like, send out, you know, yeah. It's a little yikes, yeah. Insane. It's very Just a, Basically, yeah. yeah, Myers really focuses on, like, the hostility that is not talked about very often, and, you know, he he's he's talking as a preface to who we're going to talk about next, Astor and Gerard, the other uh, shipping magnet. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he wants to cast a retrospective fleeting glance into conditions following the revolution. Despite the lofty sentiments of the Declaration of Independence, sentiments which were submerged by the propertied class when the cause was won, the gravity of law bore wholly in favor of the propertied interests. The property has had no place or recognition. The common man was good enough to shoulder a musket in the stress of war, but that he should have rights after the war was deemed absurd. In the whole scheme of government, neither the feelings nor the interests of the worker were thought of. The revolution brought no immediate betterment to his conditions. Such slight amelioration as came later was the result of years of agitation. No sooner was the revolution over than in stepped the property interest and assumed control of government functions. They were intelligent enough to know the value of class government, a lesson learned from the tactics of the British trading class. They knew the tremendous impact of law and how, directly and indirectly, it worked great transformations in the body social. While the worker was unorganized, unconscious of what his interest demanded, deluded by slogans and rallying cries which really meant nothing to him, the property class was alert in its own interest. So it proceeded to entrench itself in political as well as financial power. The Constitution was so drafted as to take as much direct power from the people as the landed and trading interest dared. Most of the state constitutions were more pronounced in rigid property discriminations. It talks about how you basically, like, you couldn't vote unless you owned a certain number, uh, a certain pound value in 
property and how that was like in most of the colonies and yeah and says theoretically religious standards were the prevailing ones we don't we hear that all the time about how religious they were in actuality the ethics and methods of the property class were all powerful the church might preach equality humility and the list of virtues but nevertheless it did not give the least man a vote since the laws favored the property interest it was correspondingly easy for them to get direct control of government functions and personally exercise them in new england rich ship owners rose at once to powerful elective and appointive offices Likewise, in New York, rich landowners, and in the South, plantation men were selected for high offices. Lawmaking bodies from Congress down were filled with merchants, landowners, plantation men, and lawyers, which last class was trained as a rule by association and self-interest to take the views of the property class and vote with and for it. A puissant politico-commercial aristocracy developed, which at all times was perfectly conscious of its best interests. The worker was regaled with flattering commendations of the dignity of labor and sonorous generalizations and promises, but the ruling class took care of the laws. By means of these partial laws, the propertied interest early began to get tremendously valuable special privileges, banking rights, canal construction, trade privileges, government favors, public franchises, all came in succession. And yeah, so then, you know, and and in meantime, poor debtors could be thrown in jail indefinitely, no matter how small a sum they owed. And, you know, the laborers basically had no rights and everything you just said. Yes. So, yep, you know, yeah. so like pretty cool revolution mm-hmm. here. I guess, you know, again, yes. shout out to the, the poor Irish. Uh, according to our best friends at the uh, managers of the Society for the Prevention of Pauperism in New York City, there were 12,000 paupers in New York City in 1820. Many of these were destitute Irish who, after having been plundered, and dispossessed by the absentee landlords and capitalists of their own country were induced to pay their last farthing to the shippers for passage to America. There were laws providing that shipmasters must report to the mayors of cities and give a bond that the destitutes that they brought over should not become public charges. These laws were systematically and successfully evaded. Poor immigrants were dumped unceremoniously at obscure places along the coast from whence they had to make their way, carrying their baggage and beds to the cities the best they could. And uh, I guess there were like harrowing cases of death resulting from exposure due to this horrible form of exploitation. Then they talked about how there was a law for pawnbrokers that limited usury on amounts over $25. And so you couldn't charge more than 7%. But on amounts below that, they were allowed to charge up to 25%, which, as the wage value money went, was oppressively high. And of course, like most poor people at that time could not afford to like take out a loan of more than $25. So they just got totally fucked over by grinding legalized usury. And that was like not changed for, I think even to this day, there's like fast cash loan company, like car title loan companies that are totally like have like 40, like 500% interest on them or something. So yeah, you know, they were building this great society from the very beginning. Begging, yes. prohibited, poverty was a crime, everything. Yeah, you couldn't awesome. ever get justice for anything uh, without possibly going to jail yourself. Um, that is, yeah. a, how is that it a has, rule? As a witness, uh, you have to be like held. It's bizarre. Um, yeah, basically, he has a great quote, which is, you know, relative to your earlier comment about his reference to alchemy in terms of banking. Uh, he also talks about, uh, you know, he calls it the most remarkable of noteworthy sorcerer's arts, the making of justice an expensive luxury, while still deluding the people with the notion that the law knows no preferences. 
Uh, ain't yeah. nothing new. So, ain't nothing new under the sun. We're still talking new. about cash bail. To, you know, cash bail today. Yeah, right? true. You know, yeah, and it's and still now is super expensive to go through any kind of you know exhausting to go through these things. Uh, but you know, the criminal cases or yeah. any kind of litigation like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll just run you. He basically says, yeah, they'll just exhaust you. And so that was something they figured out very early yeah, exactly. to game the system. And yeah, <laughs> so often you know, think uh, thinking back to. Our friend uh, Noam and his debate with Foucault, where he like positively cited the Supreme Court like decision as yeah. like that, that's just an example of how deep into the groundwater this kind of like like sanctity of the law has basically you know seeped into I guess the way a lot of Americans, even ones that fancy themselves radicals, think about it. But you know you have to think about how consciously was our entire legal system created by these merchants and plantation men who were jealously guarding their own power and influence and like plotting on basically stealing as much of it as they could get away with without sparking some kind of revolt. And to what extent so many of like the things that we just accept as foundational aspects of like our checks and balances system were actually the result of like shady ass bribes and plotting by these dudes and, you know, hate to say it, but probably smoke filled rooms that were hashing out things, right? <laughs> you know, like, mm. it, it, it's like, yeah. you, when you start going down, like, like when was it not totally corrupt and in control of, like, this kind of class alliance of people, and it basically was never not in their control. Mm. I've traveled around this country From shore to shining shore It made me wonder the things I heard and saw. I saw the weary farmer a plowing sod and loam. I heard the auction hammer just a knocking down his home. But the banks are made of marble. With a guard at every door And the bolts are stuffed with silver That the farmer sweated for I've seen the seamen standing Idly by the shore And I heard their bosses saying got no work for you no more but the banks are made of marble with a guard at every door and the bolts are stuffed with silver that the seamen sweated for I've seen the weary miner Scrubbing coal dust from his back And I've heard his children crying Got no coal to heat the shack But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the bolts are stuffed with silver 
that the miners sweated I've seen my brothers working throughout this mighty land. I've prayed we'd get together and together make a stand. Then we might own those banks of marble with a guard at every door. And we would share those faults of silver that we have sweated for. Okay, so um, we're back. And so now, so far, we've talked about a number of people that I guess are more obscure, not exactly household names, you know, going back in the deep history of the colonial period, but now we're going to come to somebody who's like a main focus of volume one. I think takes up pretty much the second half of the book for the most part. And that is John Jacob Astor, the king, king of New York at at one point. And, uh, you can still see his, you know, uh, glorious, like Tudor manners and stuff in Manhattan in various mm-hmm. places yeah. uh, across the East Coast today, his descendants went on to be very powerful uh, players in, both, well, as we'll see, like literally the most probably powerful players in uh, New York for uh, many, many decades and I guess centuries now because <laughs> they're still powerful. But it's an yeah. interesting story that I think, um, I especially as we go into this part, just to think about it in the context of Carl Oglesby cowboy and Yankee dialectic, you know, I mm-hmm. think that I, I think we both brought up, we talked about it on when we went on, you can't win. Maybe I expressed some of my reservations about certain aspects of the theory and the, the really mainly the idea that there's kind of these two separate classes and one of them kind of ended up dominating out West in the early 20th century and then there were like the Yankees and they had just like fundamentally different economic interests that culminated in, you know, one faction killing a president and the other faction uh, getting another president like thrown out of office. And I, I, due to some stuff that I'd been reading subsequently after we did that episode, um, the the Yankee cowboy episode, I, I started to notice that actually the Northeasterners were much more active in the West much earlier Mm -hmm. than I think Oglesby sort of framed it. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, I I don't want to throw out, you know, the baby in the bathwater of Oglesby's overall, you know, uh, framework. But I think Myers adds some essential ingredients that help maybe ascertain this sort of American ruling class. And it's like different multifaceted tentacles. Um, a little mm-hmm. bit. And I think John Jacob Astor is like a really great example of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, just basically uh, uh, for, for anybody, he didn't grow He also up, represents uh, like in the larger narrative that we're kind of talking about with this sort of contest between uh, landed aristocracy or like the manorial lords uh, who dominated in, into the patroon system and then a, a later on as well in, in New York and the sort of uh, shipping uh, traders 
uh, as yeah. the sort of uh, prominent class in American society or the, the dominant uh, capitalists in the uh, economic milieu. Uh, he, this, he represented kind of a, uh, a revenge or a strike back of the uh, land or the uh, wealth through land as uh you know a source of enduring he did almost and, yeah he kind yeah. of like it is kind of revenge of the nerds but like revenge of the like ruthless traitors the, the like traitor class basically in that he kind of goes full circle from starting well his in, yeah well his wealth it's more than well the trade is kind of opposed to the idea of, of landowners or the the shippers you know gerard who we're kind of skipping over although there are some great parts about him you know he talks about how like even his clothes were preserved he's basically a great example of someone who was just like eulogized so extensively after his death you know he built all these canals in pennsylvania and he talks about how even like gerard's clothes were kept like almost as relics uh and held in such reverence uh Mm, you know because he didn't have any kids or anything and he left everything to orphans and he was that was actually yes that that's the one thing that's relevant about gerard that's worth mentioning is that he that was the first example that i think myers gives of basically other wealthy people looking and seeing what the reaction was when gerard died and even though he was a total miser in his life he surprisingly left a, a you know very generous kind of package of things both to his descendants and to a bunch of public institutions and i think myers even snidely says like how nice that like you know all the orphans that were made from the people who died like working in this like company yeah. uh, now could have a place to go and but people noticed yeah. how much that benefited like reputationally the kind of merchant the you know dominant class and so that would be something that people would increasingly start it was a, a, a classic trick to pull is you know once you've accumulated enough money break off a piece and give it to something that makes you look like a really good person and then it, it, they'll almost overcompensate to pray trip over each other praising you and yeah. how amazing mm. you are it's like, it, yeah, like he never little... gave any charity he hated like you know he loved voltaire diderot and rousseau you know he was and he even named his ships after them like in his canals and things and his yeah. other vessels you know he was a shipper like he was very much of the shipping trade uh model of uh you know wealth and that predominated after the sort of fall those feudal estates like that the dutch had like van rensselaer had Mm -hmm. had um and yeah he uh you know he never gave like any charity throughout his entire life in all his 81 years and then suddenly suddenly uh you know in his will then he was like, oh, I'm opening all these hospitals and orphan societies and things like that. And so everyone was going nuts. You know, they like, again, when they kept his clothes, like uh, Myers writes, um, you know, the finely tuned rhetoric of the orators, pleasing as it was to that generation, is judged by modern standards, well nigh meaningless and worthless. And that high flown oratory with its carefully studied exordiums, periods and perorations can be clearly discerned the reverence given to power as embodied by the possession of property. But nowhere do we see any explanation, even an attempted explanation, of the basic means by which this property was acquired or of its effect upon the masses of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh-huh. woefully lacking in facts or the productions of the time as to how the great body of workers lived and what they did. And then he, you know, just talks about like uh, one example of someone who did note the conditions that workers uh, in Gerard's canals labored in 
Uh, and he says, like, uh, they labor frequently in marshy grounds where they inhale pestiferous miasmata, which destroy their health, often irrevocably. They return to their poor families brokenhearted and with ruined constitutions with a sorry pittance most laboriously earned and take to their beds sick and unable to work. Hundreds are swept off annually, many of them leaving numerous and helpless families. Notwithstanding their wretched fate, their places are quickly supplied by others, though death stares them in the face. Hundreds are most laboriously employed on turnpikes, working from morning to night from at from half a dollar to three quarters a day, exposed to the broiling sun in summer and all the inclemency of our severe winters. Uh, yeah, so that, anyway, was like yeah. one of the sort of shipping magnates that dominated for a time. But then there was sort of a resurgence of uh, the landed elite, and Astor was the epitome of that because it became less about like having a manor, you know, a grand estate with all your slaves in cottages or, you know, in workhouses uh, yeah. versus having like real estate in a city. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, well, he, he spans kind of both worlds and kind of in a way like brings them together in a way by the end of his life where, because it's interesting to note, and this kind of recurs throughout American economic history that some of the biggest names in wealth and these big dynasties, like the last episode, we talked all about the Gettys. We talked about Henry Ford and, um, you know, people and people like Vanderbilt who I think gets, he gets into in volume two, but these people actually did not come from the landed gentry New England families for the most part. Mm -hmm. They, in a lot of cases, they're actually immigrants. Um, in in yeah. Astor's case, he was born in Germany and he first went to London where his brother was selling musical instruments. And then, you know, this is the classic thing, like with one good suit of Sunday clothes, seven flutes and five pounds sterling of money, he emigrated to America and, you know, landed in New York City and kind of like basically started from the ground up more or less. So not somebody who was just handed this whole thing and, you know, basically was part of like intermarried into 20 different families, like a bit of a desperado, like a Daniel Plainview, you know, who basically actually a lot like Daniel Plainview, he had to make his first bit of money in a very brutal and like raw kind of frontier kind of way. And it's actually a very early example of somebody who I guess by, you know, he wasn't born a Yankee, but he ended up in New York City selling furs, uh, peddling fur skins and bartering cheap jewelry and things like that, almost like a street, like, uh, you know, merchant. And he's a, yeah, he's a first example of somebody who looked out West because he realized that, uh, the kind of like the fur trapping industry in New England was kind of oversaturated at that point. Like people had really aggressively hunted all these animals and stuff. So if you really wanted to get good furs, you had to go further out. And I guess he decided, I guess he was working for a guy named Robert Bone, a New York merchant. And he showed, when he was there, he showed great zest in quizzing the trappers who came in to sell furs. And he gained considerable knowledge of the fur animals. And then I guess Bone entrusted Astor the task of making long and fatiguing journeys to the Indian tribes in the Adirondacks in Canada and bargaining with them for furs. So in 1786, he set up like a small fur business for himself. And, you know, Myers notes like it's not unreasonable to suppose that at this time he in common with all the fur dealers participated in current methods of defrauding the Indians. It is certain that he contrived to get their most valuable furs for a jug of rum or for a few toys uh, or notions 
And you know, then he would come back with these furs and ship them to London where they'd be sold at a great profit. But then he did marry into a kind of good family. I guess he married Sarah Todd, a cousin of Henry Brevoort, um, who I assume is maybe like from a Dutch um, background. They said he had considerable family connections and some means. So he, he kind of married into this like Yankee elite. So he got that kind of sanction. And then um, the his descript, Meyer's description of his business, which became the American Fur Company, uh, is pretty striking. So by ni- 1794, he was somewhat of an expansive merchant. Scores of trappers and agents ravaged the wilderness at his command, and you know periodically he shipped large quantities of fur to Europe. And let me see, yeah, he moved into a bigger place and was eventually worth a quarter million dollars. I'm trying to find the best quote of like how, like he, yeah, his methods in business right here. So you know, uh, he was going out kind of to almost out to the eventually to the Mississippi River kind of area of that part of the country and Canada. Myers says that it's of greatest importance to ascertain Astor's methods in the fur trade, for it was fundamentally from this trade that he reaped the enormous sums that enabled him to become a large landowner. What these methods were in his earlier years is obscure. Nothing definite is embodied in any documentary evidence. Not so, however, regarding the methods of the greatest and most successful of his fur gathering enterprises, the American Fur Company, the, quote, popular writer referred to before I, I love that throughout this book like he's constantly subtweeting some quote popular writer that like criticized him yeah in an article mm-hmm. or something or like somebody that likes praising you know uh, billionaires but anyways yeah. yeah this popular writer uh who just like loves the millionaires says that the circumstances of Astor's furred shipping activities are well known on the contrary they are distinctly not well known nor have they ever been set forth none of Astor's biographers have brought them out if indeed they knew of them and you know he says they're of they're of the most absolute significance in that they reveal the whole foundation of the colossal fortune of the Astor family. The pursuit and slaughter of fur animals were carried on with such indefatigable vigor in the East that at that time the territory became virtually exhausted. It became imperative to push out into the fairly virgin regions of the Mississippi and Missouri rivers and of the Rocky Mountains. The Northwest Company, a corporation running under British auspices, was then scouring the wilds west and northwest of the Great Lakes. Its yearly shipments of furs were enormous. Astor realized the inconceivably vaster profits, which would be his, in extending his scope to the domains of the far west, so prolific in opportunities for furs. So in 1808, he incorporated the American Fur Company. He personally supplied its initial capital of $500,000 and dictated every phase of its policy. It, he actually tried to found a settlement of a story called Astoria in, oh, I guess, I, I, I didn't even think about it, Astor, Astoria, uh, and that's probably why Astoria Queens is named after him, too. <laughs> I didn't even realize yes. that. But, yeah, so yeah. he tried to found a, a, a story, you, well, you know, know Yeah, like an Astor place and all these. Yeah, Astor place, yeah. yeah. But the War of 1812 frustrated plans well underway, and the expedition he sent out there had to depart. Had this plan succeeded, he would have been, as he rightly boasted, the richest man in the world, and the present wealth of his descendants, instead of being 450 million, would be manifold more. So then, you know, this next section, monopoly based on force. Thwarted in his project to get a monopoly of the incalculable riches of furs in the extreme Northwest, he concentrated his efforts on that vast region extending along the Missouri River, far north of the Great Lakes, west of the Rocky Mountains, and into the Southwest. It was a region abounding in immense numbers of fur animals, and at that time was inhabited by the Indian tribes, with here and there a settlement of whites. 
By means of government favoritism and the unconcealed exercise of both fraud and force, he obtained a complete monopoly, as complete and arbitrary as ever feudal baron held over seigneurial estates. Nominally, the United States government ruled this great sweep of territory and made the laws and professed to execute them. In reality, Astor's company was a law unto itself, that it employed both force and fraud and entirely ignored all laws enacted by Congress is as clear as daylight from the government reports of that period. The American Fur Company maintained three principal poster depots uh, for receiving a distribution, St. Louis, Detroit, and Mackinac, and I guess there was, a, there was some there was an order from Lewis Cass, the Secretary of War, to send in complete reports of the fur trade. And let's see, this is what uh, Joshua Pilcher wrote as a government report in 1831. About this time in 1823, the American Fur Company had turned their attention to the Missouri trade and, as might have been expected, soon put an end to all opposition, backed as it was by any amount of capital and with skillful agents to conduct its affairs at every point. It succeeded by the year 1827 in monopolizing the trade of the Indians in the Missouri, and I have but little doubt will continue to do so for years to come, as it would be rather a hazardous business for small adventurers to rise in opposition to it. In that wild country where the government at best had an insufficient force of troops and where the agents of the company went heavily armed, it was distinctly recognized and accepted as a fact that no possible competitor's men or individual trader dare intrude. To do so was to invite the severest reprisals, not stopping short of outright murder. The fur company overawed and dominated everything. It defied the government's representatives and acknowledged no authority superior to itself and no law other than what its own interests demanded. The exploitation that ensued was one of the most deliberate, cruel, and appalling that has ever taken place in any country. And this is called, <laughs> this is where he talks in specifically about the debauching of Indians. If there was any one serious crime at that time, it was the supplying of the Indians with whiskey. The government fully recognized the baneful effects of debauching the Indians and enacted strict laws, I mean, very, like, alcophobic. Um, the government fully recognized the baneful effects of debauching the Indians and enacted strict laws with harsh penalties. Astor's company brazenly violated this law, as well as all other laws conflicting with its profit interests. It smuggled in prodigious quantities of rum. The trader's ancient trick of getting the Indians drunk and then swindling them of their furs and land was carried on by Astor on an unprecedented scale. To say what Astor knew nothing of what his agents were doing is a palliation not worthy of consideration. He was a man who knew and attended to even the pettiest details of his very business. Moreover, the liquor was dispatched by his orders direct by ship to New Orleans, and from thence up the Mississippi to St. Louis and other frontier points. The horrible effects of this traffic and the consequent spoliation were set forth by a number of government <laughs> officers. And yeah, this is uh, the Colonel J. Snelling, who commanded the Army garrison of Detroit, sent an indignant protest to James Barber, the Secretary of War, in 1825. Quote, he who has the most whiskey generally carries off the most furs, wrote Snelling, and then continued. This is a vivid quote. The neighborhood of the trading houses where whiskey is sold presents a disgusting scene of drunkenness, debauchery, and misery. It is the fruitful source of all of our difficulties and of nearly all the murders committed in the Indian country. For the accommodation of my family, I have taken a house three miles from town, and in passing to and from it, I have daily opportunities of seeing the roads strewed with the bodies of men, women, and children in the last stages of brutal intoxication. It is true there are laws in this territory to restrain the sale of whiskey, but they are not regarded. Colonel Snelling added that during that year, there had been delivered by contract to an agent of the North American Fur Company at Mackinac. Wow, extremely alcophobic. Uh, chill yeah, out, man. Wow. Have, yeah, have right? a drink, all right? Come have on, dude. 
Yeah, so yeah. The, he found that there was a contract from an agent of the American Fur Company, um, which like had headquarters at that post, uh, to, I guess, deliver... 3,300 gallons of whiskey and 2,500 gallons of You sound kind of like wines. a cop a little bit uh, complain, complaining about the animal. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, basically, uh, Colonel Snelling went uh, there's on There's laws against uh, giving uh, whiskey to the Indians. <laughs> okay, cop. No, sorry. Uh, anyway, sorry. Yeah, so uh, he said, I will venture to add that an inquiry into the manner in which the Indian trade is conducted, especially by the American Fur Company, is a matter of no small importance to the tranquility of the borders. And, yeah, I mean, they basically uh, then later on, like the next year, the superintendent of Indian affairs complained to the secretary of war um, that, quote, the forbidden and destructive article whiskey is considered so essential to a lucrative commerce as not only to still those feelings of repugnance, but lead the traders to brave the most imminent hazards and evade by various methods the threatened penalties of law. The superintendent proceeded to tell the recent seizure by General Tipton, Indian agent of Fort Wayne, of an outfit in transit containing a considerable supply of whiskey, which is owned in large part, he says, by the American Fur Company. He then continued, quote, the trader with the whiskey, it must be admitted, is certain of getting the most furs. There are many honorable and high-minded citizens in this trade, but expediency overcomes their objections and reconciles them for the sake of the profits of the trade. And he says, McKenney was unwittingly enunciating a profound truth, the force of which mankind is only now beginning to realize that the pursuit of profit will transform natures inherently capable of much good into sordid, cruel beasts of prey and accustomed them to committing actions so despicable, so inhuman, that they would be terrified were it not that the world is under the sway of the profit system and not merely excuses and condones, but justifies and throws a glamour about the unutterable degradations and crimes which the profit system calls forth. Um, yeah, you know, I, I like that he yeah. says this. Uh, Living in a more advanced time, in an environment adjusted to bring out the best instead of the worst, Astor and his henchmen might have been men of supreme goodness and gentleness. As it was, they lived at a period when it was considered the highest, most astute and successful form of trade to resort to any means, however base, to secure profits. Let not too much ignominy be cast upon their memories. They were but creatures of their time, and their time was not that golden age so foolishly pictured, but a wild, tempestuous Tending struggle in which every man was at the throat of his fellow man, and in a vortex which statesmen, college professors, editors, political economists, all praised and sanctified as, quote, progressive civilization. You know, I mean, that <laughs> wow. really yeah, hits uh, towards yeah. today. Yeah. He's got a great writing style, an amazing writing style. Yes. Uh, he just pauses yeah. like five times every chapter to just launch a paragraph of invective of like how disgusting these people are. And now, yeah. like, they don't deserve any of the things. Like they're basically the real criminals. And yeah, like they are masquerading. He really seems particularly angered, which I think. I, I think we really feel, you know, on Subliminal Jihad, uh, it's like the, the kind of the uh, the smug lying and pretending that you're not doing what you're doing aspect of it and the fact that nobody will, like, call out what it is. And, you know, which is kind of the entire journalistic academic complex of his day was like, no, mm -hmm. they're great men of excellent thrift and industry and blah, blah, blah. You yeah. know, and saying, uh, but it's also, it, it is, I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's appropriate for him to point out that he's not just doing like a villain, like a drive-by takedown of Aster, like he was this unique sicko that was just so evil and like he went out and did capitalism and that's why everything is the way it is. No, instead, Aster is just, he is an exemplar of an entire class of people 
behaving in a way that was extremely normalized in that culture at the time, which is not to excuse him by any means, but it's also not to do the kind of, you know, uh, reduce everything to exposing a supervillain, and then once we get him, then, you know, things will stop being bad. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's also, you know, the people that, people that are born into this system and participate in it and accept its values are kind of, whether they like it or not, have to, they have to follow the, the dictates of the system. They have to mm-hmm. let capital go where it wants to go, which is, you know, it wants to go everywhere. It wants to take over everything and all that stuff. So it's not a system designed to create, uh, you know, human excellence, like, you know, moral excellence, right? I think we can safely say. And mm-hmm. it also means that he's indicative of basically everybody, every one of his contemporaries was doing similar things. They were just less successful at it than he was. So that's yeah. also a and thing. It's like, yeah. What he, yeah. And what he did then is also, you know, uh, relevant because, yeah, this is where the investment in land, yeah, both out west and as I think maybe we'll discuss later in the east, in, in New York in particular, he, you know, put a lot of the, the resources into the, into the land. Myers uh, says about this. What a climax of trading methods to first debauch the Indians systematically in order to swindle them and then make a large revenue on the rum that enabled the company to do it. Undoubtedly, it was by these means that Astor became possessed of large tracts of land in Wisconsin and elsewhere in the west. But the methods thus far enumerated were but the precursors of others. When the Indians were made maudlin drunk and bargained with for their furs, were they paid in money? By no means. The American Fur Company had had another trick in reserve. Astor employed the cunning expedient of exchanging merchandise for furs. Large quantities of goods, especially woolens, made by underpaid adult and child labor in England and America, and representing the sweat and suffering of the labor of the workers, were regularly shipped to him by him to the West. For these goods, the Indians were charged one half again, or more uh, what each article cost, after paying all expenses of transportation. Reporting from St. Louis, uh, October 24th, 1831, in a communication to the Secretary of War, Thomas Forsyth gave a description of this phase of the American Fur Company's dealings. He said, In the autumn of every year, the trader carefully avoids giving credit to the Indians on many costly articles such as silverworks, wampum, scarlet cloth, fine bridles, etc., etc., and as also a few woolens, such as blankets, strouds, etc., unless it be to an Indian whom he knows will pay all his debts. In that case, he will allow the Indian on credit everything he wishes. Traders always prefer giving credit on gunpowder, flints, lead, kn- lead, knives, tomahawks, hoes, domestic cottons, etc., which they do at the rate of 300 or 400 percent. And if one fourth of the price of these articles be paid, he is amply remunerated. So hey, literally, free market, cool. 300 or 400 percent. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The arbitrage on that, like the just like literally yeah. inserting himself, that is alchemy. That basically is like satanic alchemy. It's just like create, like like stealing the value. You know, ugh, it's just yeah. It's it's like so. But you know, like this is this is like the real like the core, the the dark beating heart of like American capitalism, like in its infancy is like it had to like mm-hmm. learn how to kill and cheat and do whatever it took and you know basically then it, it learned its manners a little bit later 
and you know put its airs on and stuff but you know it's uh, Myers also describes like the cycle of violence that basically like the, his American fur company just sounds like such like an evil enterprise but it, it says that uh, in law the Indian was supposed to have certain rights but Astor's company not only ignored them but flattered them now when the Indians complained what happened did the government protect them the government, and especially the courts, were quick and generous in affording the greatest protection and the widest latitude to Astor's company. But when the Indians resented the robberies and injustices to which they were subjected beyond bearing, they were murdered. They were uh, murdered wantonly and in cold blood, and then urgent alarmist representations would be sent to Washington that the Indians were in a rebellious state, whereupon troops would be punitively hurried forth to put them down in slaughter. In turn, goaded by an intense spirit of revenge, the Indians would resort to primitive force and waylay, rob, and murder the white agents and traders. From 1815 to 1831, more than 150 traders were robbed and killed by Indians. Many of these were Astor's men, but how many Indians were killed by the whites has never been known, nor apparently was there any any solicitude as to whether the number was great or small. But he says in the notes, Forsyth admits that in practically all of these murders, the whites were to blame initially. And um, mm-hmm. and he says, but then he also makes, he goes further because, you know, nobody comes out good. Like, what did Astor pay his men for engaging in this degrading and dangerous business? Is it not a terrifying commentary on the lengths to which men are forced to go in quest of a livelihood and the benumbing effects on their sensibilities that Astor should find a host of men ready to seduce the Indians into a state of drunkenness, cheat and rob them, and all this only to get robbed and perhaps murdered in turn? For 10 or 11 months in the year, Astor's subaltern men toiled arduously through forest and plain, risking sickness, the dangers of the wilderness, and sudden death. They did not rob because it benefited them. It was what they were paid to do, and it was likewise expected of them that they should look upon the imminent chances of death as a part of their contract. For all this, what was their pay? It was the trifling sum of $130 for the 10 or 11 months. But this was not paid in money, of course. The poor wretches who gave up their labor and often their health and lives for Astor were themselves robbed or their heirs, if they had any. Payment was nearly always made in merchandise, which was then sold at exorbitant prices. Everything that they needed, they had to buy at Astor's stores. By the time they had bought a year's supplies, they not only had nothing coming to them, but they were often actually in debt to Astor. But Astor, how did he fare? His profits from the fur trade in the West were truly stupendous for that period. He himself might plead to the government that the company was in a decaying state of poverty. These pleas deceived no one. It was characteristic of his habitual deceit that he should petition the government for a duty on foreign furs on the ground that the company was being competed with in the American markets by the British fur companies. At this very time, Astor held a virtual monopoly on fur trading in the United States. One need not be described at the grounds of such a plea. Throughout the whole history of the trading class, this pathetic and absurdly false plea of poverty has been incessantly used by this class and used successfully to get further concessions and privileges from a government which reflected and represented its interests. Curiously enough, however, if a mendicant used the same plea in begging a mite of alms on the streets, the law has invariably regarded him as a vagrant to be committed to the workhouse. Cool. Yeah, so, and a great yeah. yeah, a great thing is that like while at the same time he was saying like oh we're not making any money that's why you need to impose a duty just like as a formality when everyone knew he was lying like at that very same time uh, as Meyer says his son was in New York writing letters to the Secretary of War at the time uh, saying like you know we're making half a million dollars every year uh, you know we're like. You know, our returns are great. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he, he made a lot of money off of that. Yeah, where he went from there. Yeah, it's interesting uh, in terms of, like, the transformation and the systems of land ownership 
that happens. You know, he writes, uh, you know, uh, Aster profited richly from his monopolies. This is in a section called Aster's Monopolies. His monopoly of furs in the West was made a basis for the creation of other monopolies. China was a voracious and highly profitable market for furs. In exchange for the cargoes of these that he sent there, his ships would be loaded with teas and silks. These products he sold at exorbitant prices in New York. His profits from a single voyage sometimes reached $70,000. The average profits from a single voyage were uh, $30,000. During the War of 1812 to 15, tea rose to double its usual price. Astor was invariably lucky in that his ships escaped capture. At one period, he was about the only merchant who had a cargo of tea in the market. He exacted and was allowed to exact his own price. Mm. Meanwhile, Astor was setting about making himself the richest and largest landowner in the country. His were not the most extensive land possessions in point of extent, but in regard to value. He aimed at being a great city, not a great rural landlord. It was estimated that his trade in furs and associated commerce brought him a clear annual revenue of about $2 million. This estimate was palpably inadequate. Not only did he reap enormous profits from the fur trade, but also from banking privileges in which he was a conspicuous factor. Mm. It was on one of his visits to London, so the recital goes, that he first became possessed of the idea of founding an extraordinarily rich landed family. He admired, it is told, the great landed estates of the British nobility, and observed the prejudice against the caste of the traitor and the corresponding exalted position of the landowner. Whether this story is true or not, it is evidence that he was impressed with the increasing power and the stability of a fortune founded upon land, and how it radiated a certain splendid privilege. So, yeah, there's this sort of mm -hmm. intermediary period, kind of uh, epitomized by Gerard, where it's best to be, you know, it, which Astor also participated in, being like a fur trader. You know, he was, yeah, like you said, he was a bridge between these two worlds, where, you know, we have this sort of manorial gentry of the you know, now distant uh, past with the patroons and maybe uh, that survives in the sort of southern uh, gentry, you know, the agrarian uh, landlords. And then, you know, you have sort of the shipping wealth of the east. And now he's like, well, I can be a city landlord. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the the very definition of the word landlord Lord of the soil signified mm -hmm. the awe compelling and authoritative position of him who owned land, a definition heightened and enforced in a thousand ways by the laws. The speculative and solid possibilities of New York City real estate held out dazzling opportunities, gratifying his acquisitiveness for wealth and power, the wealth that fed his avarice and the power flowing from the dominion of riches. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And that, mm -hmm. that, that was a big turning point of focusing on city real estate. And that mm -hmm. like that was the property basically to get into because you could see that basically it was. Yeah, it's like, you know, buying a house in California on the California coast in like 1965. Like it's just going to keep going up, like basically, but on such a much bigger scale because it really wasn't New York. I think it wasn't until the Erie Canal was constructed by Gerard, right, that that made suddenly made New York the undisputed kind of commercial uh, capital of the East Coast. And so basically uh it grew a little bit at that point but when astor was making his moves i think gerard's still... canals were in pennsylvania who built the erie canal well the erie um, canal was in the, pennsylvania was... as well wasn't it no the erie canal's in in new york or the, oh it, right, no, yeah, it's only it, in new you're york. right it yeah, might have yeah, been yeah. a different canal that gerard built but um yeah mm -hmm. i guess yeah, astor yeah. was quite convinced that that and and he got very 
uh, yeah, we can probably go into a second, uh, of like the, the total graft and bribery of like by which he was able to buy so much New York real estate. Um, but again here, you know, uh, Myers still like, takes a pause to say that Astor was not an exception. You know, he said his methods mm -hmm. in trade or in acquiring of land need not be indiscriminately condemned as an exclusive mania, nor should they be held up to the curiosity of posterity as a singular and pernicious exhibition detached from his time and generation and independent of them. Again and again, the facts disclose that men such as he were merely the representative crests of prevailing commercial and political life. Substantially, the whole property class obtained its wealth by methods which, if not the same, had a strong relationship. His methods differed nowise from those of many cotton planters of the South who stole on a monstrous scale government land and then with the wealth derived from their thefts, bought Negro slaves, set themselves up in the glamour of a patriarchal aristocracy, and paraded a florid display of chivalry and honor. It was this same grandiose class that plundered Whitney of the fruits of his invention of the cotton gin and shamelessly defrauded him. So, you know, they all, they're all bad. Um, they're all sick and you know it, it, yeah uh, I guess I, I wonder if he bought the county in Wisconsin that we talked about in the Dogman episode that was like very Anglo-Saxon while mm -hmm. the rest of Wisconsin is very you know uh, German Scandinavian but mm -hmm. yeah I guess uh, but in Wisconsin speaking of Wisconsin there was like a government committee in 1840 that found out that uh, with the connivance of local land agents like a ton of federal land had been sold at private sale before they were even subject to public entry, in the consequence of which many tracts of land known to be rich and valuable mineral lands for many years, and known to be such at the time of the entry, have been entered by evil-minded persons who have falsely made or procured others to make the oath required by the land offices. Honest men have been excluded from the purchase of these lands, while the dishonest and unscrupulous have been permitted to enter them by means of false oath, false oath and fraud. So basically, there were all these corrupt, like, government officials that were setting up private auctions to sell all this huge tracts of land to rich people coming from mostly, you know, the East, basically. Like, uh, as far back mm -hmm. as kind of the, uh, the 1930s. And, um, yeah, I mean, he... Myers really hates, uh, I guess, I don't know, the hypocrisy. He goes on another tirade, like, that... Um, oh, uh, it, it was, uh, by the way, it was DeWitt Clinton, the governor of New York, who's, like, credited mostly with, like, doing the Erie Canal or uh, coming up oh, with okay, the okay. idea and championing the Erie Canal. Yeah, uh, it's actually gotcha. interesting because George Clinton... Yes. George Clinton was the uncle of DeWitt Clinton, uh, who mm. does come up in this part. I think that DeWitt Clinton might come up more... Uh, substantially in part two of uh, this history. Yeah, he was a member, DeWitt Clinton, that is, was a member of, like, the Society of Cincinnati, which is, like, Hamilton's oh. sort of uh, revolutionary brotherhood that was kind of opposed to the Tam Tammany Hall uh, organization. Wait, which wait is, so he was know, literally something. connected to the Society of the Cincinnati, because we, we brought that up recently, the Society of the Cincinnati. Yeah. Did, did we not? We were, ta we were talking about it, I think, before we started recording today, relative to Tammany Hall, because Tammany Hall was kind of formed against the Society of the Cincinnati um, in opposition to it, which was created by kind of Hamilton and his sort of Federalist faction. And DeWitt Clinton was both a York-right Freemason uh, and wow. also a hereditary member of the Society of Cincinnati. But his uncle, George Clinton, was like pretty rich, you know, in his time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, he's an example a, of somebody quote, who fell know, off a little bit because he stubbornly kind of didn't. I forget exactly the anecdote that he relates in here, but he got kind of screwed over. I think maybe by Astor in a deal. 
Uh, it says uh, in Meyer's book, he actually quotes a popular writer again. Uh, For once we get a gleam of truth, but a gleam only in the popular writer's account when he says, John Jacob Astor's record is constantly crossed by embarrassed families, prodigal sons, mortgages, and foreclosure sales. Many of the victims of his foresight were those highest in church and state. He thus acquired uh, for uh, $75,000 one half of Governor George Clinton's splendid Greenwich Country Palace uh, in the old Greenwich Village on the west side of Manhattan Island. After the governor's death, he kept persistently at the heirs, lent them money, and acquired additional slices of the family property. Nearly two-thirds of the Clinton farm is now held by Astor's descendants and is covered by scores of business buildings from which is derived an annual income estimated at $500,000. Uh, yeah, he goes on to say, uh, or Myers goes on to say, in this transaction, we see the beginnings of that period of conquest on the part of the very rich using their surplus capital and effacing the less rich, a period which really opened with Astor and which has been vastly intensified in recent times. Clinton was accounted a rich man in his day, but he was a pygmy in that respect compared to Astor. With his incessant inflow of surplus wealth, Astor was in a position where on the instant he could take advantage of the difficulties of less rich men and take over himself to their property take over to himself their property. A large amount of Astor's money was invested in mortgages. In times of periodic financial and industrial distress, the mortgages were driven to extremities and could no longer keep up their payments. These were the times that Astor waited for, and it was in such times that he stepped in and possessed himself at comparatively small expense of large additional tracts of land. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, I think and Astor's family, they weren't like, you know, he kind of talks about how they weren't like super openly associated with any political factions. But yeah, they were yeah. more like Tammany aligned, uh, I think, despite, as he says, like in later decades uh, and in, I think, the time of his writing, they were kind of positioning themselves as like opponents of Tammany corruption. Uh, yes, yeah. He Astor actually he, he had a very yeah. good quote, I think, talking about uh, maybe it was Astor's grandson or around the turn of the century and that kind of, oh, everybody's acting like the reformer now. But he said neither Astor yeah, nor right. Delay were, active, were directly active members of the changing political cliques which controlled the affairs of New York City. It is likely that they bore somewhat the same relation to these cliques that the politico-industrial yeah. magnates and financiers of today do, to all appearances distinctly apart from participation in politics, and yet by means of money having a strong or commanding influence in the background. So the, yeah, that seemed that rings super yeah. true to today. Exactly, yeah. Of like, mm. what, are, what what are the what's the Mellon family up to? Like, what are the Rockefellers doing? They, you do see them pop up from time to time. I mean, Lawrence Rockefeller's sitting out there in Jackson Hole telling Bill and Hillary that you know there's there's ETs everywhere in the supermarket and yeah. you know, like all <laughs> that shit or like yeah. you know they're like the uh, Chris Mellon's running around on TV talking about you know uh, like flying saucers and shit and so they're they're doing something and they're still involved in you know to various degrees but you see that now that there's like a little bit of a distance of like oh it's kind of gauche for us to get involved directly in politics like I just have a foundation that wants to do something good in the world or something like that or they yeah maybe they have a political platform but they're not directly like running for office or something and you know, but you don't see what's going on behind closed doors, do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really love this quote that he uh, may, uh, gives later on. Uh, he, this is another chapter uh, or a section called uh, Defrauding a Fine Art. Uh, you know, saying defrauding is a fine art. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, so he, he writes in this part uh, just before that. He says, In every city, in Boston, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Baltimore, New Orleans, and in every other place, 
the same or nearly the same conditions prevailed. The rich evaded taxation, and if in the process it was necessary to perjure themselves, they committed perjury with alacrity. Astor was far from being an exception. He was but an illustrious type of the whole of his class. But how, in a government theoretically democratic and resting on popular suffrage, did the propertied interests get control of government functions? How were they able to sway the popular vote and make or evade laws? By various influences and methods. In the first place, the old English ideas of the superiority of aristocracy had a profound effect upon American thought, customs, and laws. For centuries, these ideas have been incessantly disseminated by preachers, pamphleteers, politicians, political economists, and editors. Where in England the concept applied mainly to rank by birth, in America it was adapted to the native aristocracy, the traders and landowners. In England it was an admixture of rank and property. In America, where no titles of nobility existed, it became exclusively a token of the propertied class. The people were assiduously taught in many open and subtle ways to look up to the inviolability of property. Just as in the old days they had been taught to look humbly up to the majesty of the king. Propertied men, it was preached and admonished, represented the worth, stability, virtue, and intelligence of the community. They were the solid, substantial men. What importance was to be attached to the propertyless? They, forsooth, were regarded as irresponsible and vulgar. Their opinions and aspirations were held of small account. Uh, mm -hmm. The churches yeah. professed to preach to all, yet it depended largely upon men of property for contributions. And moreover, the clergy, at least the influential of them, were propertied men themselves. The preachings of the colleges and the doctrines of the political economists corresponded precisely to the views of the trading interests at different periods wanted taught. Sorry, the, the, trade, that, the views that the trading interests wanted taught at different periods. Many of the colleges were founded with funds contributed or bequeathed by traders. The newspapers were supported by the advertisements of the propertied class. The various legislative bodies were mainly, and the judicial benches wholly, recruited from the ranks of the lawyer class. These lawyers either had or sought to have the richest clients. Few attorneys are overzealous for poor men's cases. Still further, the lawyers were deeply impregnated, not with the conception of law as it might be, but as it had been handed down through the centuries. Encrusted creatures of precedent and self-interest, they thoroughly accepted the doctrine that in, making and in the making and enforcement of law, their concern should be for the property interests. With few exceptions, they were aligned with the property. So that here were many influence, all of which conspired to spread on every hand and drill deep in the minds of all classes, often even of those who suffered so keenly by prevalent conditions, the idea that the propertied men were the substantial element. Consequently, with this idea continuously driven into every stratum of society, it was not surprising that it should be embodied in thoughts, customs, laws, and tendencies. Nor was it to be wondered that when occasionally a proletarian uprising enunciated radical principles, these principles should seem to be abnormally ultra-revolutionary. All society, for the most part, except a fragment of the working class, was enthralled by the spell of property. Mm. Now, another yeah, another spell out. reference. Yeah. Did we mention? Yeah, did we yeah. only talk about it before recording, or did we mention? Uh, we haven't on mentioned the podcast yet. That he was. It's. Yeah, he was mentioning. also into like spiritualism. Yeah, and he wrote a whole book that we definitely should discuss at one point about. Yeah. You know, maybe in a future episode, uh, either part of this, uh, I guess, blossoming series, or uh, you know, its own thing. Uh, just about like his belief in mediums and physical mediumship. A lot of his uh, accounts of it are very similar to uh, the uh, woman who was uh, Leslie Keen. Leslie Keen, uh, oh, her description Leslie of physical Keen, really? mediumship mm, that we talked about. Yeah, well, it was the same thing of like feeling etheric hands and stuff like that. Yeah. One thing that was noteworthy, I thought, was that, you know, one of the most famous uh, 
uh, sort of spiritualist frauds. It made me kind of uh, a little bit curious because one of the most famous spiritualist frauds that you hear about are the Fox sisters. You know, if you yeah. Google spiritualism, like one of the first people that come up, it's like the classical example of the fraud of spiritualism was the Fox sisters who would yeah, click their toes or whatever. You know, yeah, debunked. But uh, he was a truther about the Fox sisters. You know, it wasn't that he was taken mm. in by them like before they confessed. It was even after their confession, he felt that, you know, that they were like, because I think later on in life, one of them, I think Margaret Fox, uh, I don't recall, but I think Margaret, yeah. uh, she became like an alcoholic and, you know, was kind of destitute and desperate. And she kind of repudiated spiritualism or she got into, uh, she came to view it as, as demonic, which eh, maybe she was right. But, you know, anyway, uh, she, <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's not what she ended up saying. She didn't say that it was evil spirit. She said that I was a fraud. You know, she said that I was faking this or lying which you know in uh Meyer's view was that she wasn't lying that it was real hmm. but that her confession to have lied was the real lie oh uh, so, interesting mm, something interesting. to visit yeah, yeah no we'll, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll love to dive into that because uh, how often do you yeah get it's, it's interesting because it's uh, it's totally it's a totally different topic guy. like there's there's only those slight, you know, uh, sort of crossovers like the spell and, and sorceries and things like that, you know, or in his Tammany Hall book, which we, I guess, probably don't have time to discuss in this episode, but his discussion no, of their no, strange no. sort of Native American-esque rituals and things like that. There's only like slight indications of the crossover, but he still has like his style, you know, his uh, the yeah. style that we've demonstrated in, in our, so it's very interesting, yeah. Yeah, uh, okay. But, yeah. but back to back to J.J. Astor and what he was doing. So, yeah. okay, he does a few things that become kind of like emblematic and he kind of almost like sets the template a little bit, I think, for... Uh, Gilded Age millionaires and even billionaires today where he sort of moves through. First, he started to get into land acquisition. He also invested heavily in mortgages and kind of specialized. You know how there's just like a, that dynamic of capitalism where the markets melt down and there's like a financial panic? You know, this basically happened throughout uh, up until kind of the Great Depression still kind of happens. And, you know, everybody lost everything. Well, he was heavily invested in people's mortgages so he could bait and then he would like enthusiastically go and foreclose on everybody's property and scoop it up for, you know, 10 cents on the dollar, basically whenever there was an economic downturn. So he was just like there like a vulture and just like constantly lending money to people and then taking their shit and had very onerous, uh, I think, uh, kind of uh, lease rules uh, for his property where I think like the whoever rented it had to build everything on their own dime and he would usually give a 21 year lease and then they would have to leave and then he would like take over the property which had like whatever improvements the person built on it and of course charge them you know too much rent but then he actually then he got into banking and Meyer says that not a single one of Astor's biographers has mentioned his banking connections, but basically like that's where this, he really starts to join up with this like arch network. And he says like the banking activities were really what like put him over the top as like in his career of wealth gathering. Astor flourished, he writes, at that precise time when the traders and landowners flushed with revenues reached out for the creation and control of the highly important business of professionally dealing in money and of dictating personally and directly what the supply of the people's money should be. 
This signaled the next step in the aggrandizement of individual fortunes. The few who could center themselves by grace of government, the banking and manipulation of people's money and the restricting or inflating of money issues, were immediately vested with an extraordinary power. It was a sovereign power at once coercive and prescriptive, and a mighty instrument for transferring the produce of the many to a small and exclusive coterie. Not merely over the labor of the whole working class did this gripping process extend, but it was severely felt by that large part of the landowning and trading class, which was excluded from holding the same privileges. The banker became the master of the master. In that fierce, pervading competitive strife, the banks were the final exploiters. Sparsely organized and wholly unprotected, the worker was in the complete power of the trader, manufacturer, and landowner. In turn, such of these divisions of the property class as were not themselves sharers in the ownership of the banks were at the mercy of the banking institutions. And, you know, so basically, I mean, this is basic stuff, like everybody knows, at any time upon some bullshit pretext or other, the banks could arbitrarily refuse the latter class credit or accommodation or harass its victims in other ways equally as destructive. As business was largely done in expectations of payment, in other words, credit, as it is now, this is a serious, often a desperate blow to the lagging or embarrassed brothers in trade. Banks were virtually empowered by law to ruin or enrich any individual or set of individuals. As the banks were then founded or owned by men who were themselves traders or landholders, this power was crushingly used against competitors. Armed with the strong power of the law, the banks overawed the mercantile world, thrived on the industry, misfortune or ruin of others, and swayed politics and elections. The bank men loaned money to themselves at an absurdly low rate of interest, but for loans of money to all others, they demanded a high rate of interest, which, in periods of commercial distress, overwhelmed the the borrowers, nominally banks were restricted to a certain standard rate of interest, but by various subterfuges that easily evaded these provisions and exacted usurious rates. That's just like today, where they have like the Fed borrowing window, where like every bank gets 0% interest loans, and then everybody else is set at whatever the international rate is. Anyway, so, you know, basically, yeah, like, like, that's exactly what the Rockefellers and them uh, did. And I mean, also the Morgans, you know, the Rockefellers ended up with Chase Manhattan Bank after making all their money off of oil. And that's really kind of the, not to be too like, folks, it's the top of the power pyramid, um, or be yeah. like elders of Zion about it, because these are all wasps, so let's not forget. <laughs> like, just because we're saying there are mm. bankers at the top of the pyramid doesn't mean we're talking. Mm. So I think we have to get comfortable like saying that, that you know we're talking about wasp uh, high bankers who probably sit on the boards of 10 different companies and are just like mega interlock subjects, basically. And that's where Astor, I guess, ended up. He also didn't pay taxes forever. He probably cheated the city of New York out of, like, I don't know, millions, I mean, but hundreds the Astors, of millions of dollars. The Astors aren't necessarily wasps, though, are they? I mean, because they're not... Uh, he's German. Uh, yeah, they're not Anglo-Saxons. They, mm, I guess, Saxon. have ancestral roots in the Italian Alps. I guess, yeah, Saxons. That's true. They're Saxons. I, I mean, well, it's just like how, and, like, Andrew you know. Carnegie is Scottish, Henry Ford was Irish. Like, a lot of these guys that were the really big names. And it, it, it it's adding more weight, I think, to my, like, pet theory that I'm not saying I've proved, but I'm starting to get this sense of they're, like, these front people that are, like, the public billionaires. And they're the face that, you know, they, they get a lot of the, the credit and the clout and the celebrity, but they also get a lot of the, the flack and the anger from people, people like Bill Gates, for example. And to what extent is there like, you know, a a much, a larger class that is like kind of almost put that person up to be like the guy 
you know, and then they all benefit and they're all on the boards, but like nobody even pays attention to them because we're so wowed with like, wow, Bill Gates is so cool. Like Mark Zuckerberg's such a genius. Whoa, Elon Musk, like rocket to the moon. You know what I mean? And meanwhile, we're not thinking about who's on the board of like SpaceX. Like who put Elon Musk, who introduced Elon Musk to like the right people in Silicon Valley to be a part of the PayPal mafia in the first place? Like what kind of banking you know, uh, white shoe law firm, whatever, uh, government connected, you know, national security connected types of people, because they're all intertwined with each other. So the idea that, you know, just because I guess, uh, somebody like Astor, he also married into like a Dutch family, like a prominent Dutch family. So he's like honorarily basically John Jacob Astor. Yeah. Wasn't his wife, Sarah Cox Todd. Am I thinking of the right person? Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and then she was, she a, was accused of witchcraft. Really? Apparently. Uh huh. Interesting. So I've heard. Yes, he married Sarah Todd, who brought him a dowry of only three hundred dollars, but who possessed a frugal mind and a business judgment that he declared to be better than that of most merchants. She assisted him in the practical details of his business. Before the close of the century, Astor possessed, as the result of fifteen years of constant work a fortune of $250,000. He then, for the first time, uh, took a house separate from his store. Um, yeah, and this actually mentions Astoria. I'm just gonna keep looking, because I think this is the right thing. No, it doesn't say it in this. Hmm. Huh, interesting. Hmm. While you're looking into that, um, I, you might want to know that John Jacob Astor, it's actually, uh, unfortunately, I guess, not mentioned in this book, but uh, John Jacob Astor was a Freemason and uh, served as master of Holland Lodge Number no. 8, New York City, in 1788. Uh, he later served as grand treasurer for the Grand Lodge of New York, which is the oldest, uh, largest and oldest independent organization of Freemasons in the state of New York. It was once the largest Grand Lodge in the world in terms of membership. It was founded in 1788. Two and actually, when you look on the list of who the grand masters were at that lodge, uh, DeWitt Clinton was was um, so like that very Stephen Van Rensselaer the, from the Van Rensselaer dynasty, and um, mm-hmm, right, yeah, you know, just like a lot of a lot of people with hyperlinks uh, here. Yeah, there's also something called the Organization of Triangles Incorporated that is connected to the Grand Lodge of New York for young. It's a youth movement for young women between ages 10 and 21 years old. And I guess it's also connected to the Order of the Eastern Star and yada, yada, yada. Uh, they support lots of charitable causes and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, Astor was in with these Freemasons, too, which is something to, yeah, I don't know. But uh, it, was his wife a witch? Uh, I'm not seeing well, anything Wikipedia about it. Well, Wikipedia says that his wife was accused of witchcraft, but I can't find necessarily any other indication of that so this could just be like i can't find it on google books i can't find it i'm looking now but i can't find it anywhere but it is like a tantalizing uh thing that i just stumbled across uh, there is a conspiracy okay there's a thing under the bloodline section of biblio biblioteca pleiades.net a great old um old school conspiracy website um you know why don't we just why don't we just throw this in there uh the aster bloodline just <laughs> so in case people are like beating you know their heads against the wall they know all these the aster conspiracies that we're not saying this might also be wrong uh Bibli- I, I wouldn't necessarily endorse everything but i oh it, yeah mm-hmm. hmm, uh it, it starts off by claiming that like actually he was from a jewish bloodline um, I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, but uh, let's let's move 
on. Um, so he came to America. It says the story is that he came to America penniless, and that may be true, but he soon joined the Masonic Lodge. And within two to three years, he became master of the Holland Lodge, number eight in New York City. Uh, I guess it's, uh, well, it says, parentheses, this Holland Lodge is a prominent lodge that many of its members have good connections to the Illuminati elite. Okay. Um, oh, actually, wow. <laughs> uh, but Archibald Russell was, uh, I think, I guess, the head might be connected to the, the Skull and Bones Russells. Okay, this is like a very, yeah, wacky thing. But I guess yeah. the, lots of connections to the DuPont family. I don't know. Okay, I'm not going to read this. It's too much. Uh, oh, wait, but it does say something about <laughs> his, his, It does say something about his wife being a witch, though. Because it's like, definitely, I like don't ride only, with, I can't believe it. there's no other, like, documentation of this. Like, why is it on Wikipedia? Like, Wikipedia sucks so much. Like, uh, there's, like, all yeah. these, like, unattested citations. All these, like, caliph... Uh, uh, defenders who are, you know, uh, like just making up lies. Like we need to okay. verify hmm. whether this is true. This, okay, this is interesting. Uh, oh, this is actually about the the. Okay, th this is actually a, a very action packed paragraph. Communism <laughs> pretends it's, it is the enemy of the rich capitalists, but both the rich elite and the communist leaders are committed to wipe out Christianity, wipe out okay. free trade with monopolies, and set up an Illuminati one world <laughs> government. Do you see they have similar goals? A picture is included of Waldorf and Nancy Astor's visit to Russia during the 1930s. The Astors were not treated like enemies, but like royalty. Can we see how the elite controlled press have deceived us? Do not trust our Illuminati controlled elite to protect us from communism. They control communism. Besides socialism, Nancy Astor was a big supporter of Christian science. Christian science was a front for witchcraft for its very beginning. For more information on what Christian science is, I suggest people study Be Wise as Serpents. Uh, okay, so well, I got on there, I don't know why the Astors were going to the Soviet Union in the 1930s, but that is interesting. I don't think it's because they control communism, but um, uh, anyways, I don't know. Yeah, maybe they do. There's actually a lot of references to witch um, stuff that, I guess, uh, the cult of Diana, I don't know, practice in southwestern Germany, <laughs> you know? Like, uh, you can really okay. go a little while. We'll save that for maybe we'll, we'll save that for later. Well, I just want to know if there was really an accusation of witchcraft. I mean, where did that even come from? But anyway. What uh, I saw was that some after they first got their wealth, they were... Uh, yeah, that she was so successful because she was consulted. Yeah, that's what I saw on Wikipedia. On the Wikipedia entry for Astor Family. That's the only reference to it that I've found. Yeah, well, as we know uh, with, like, the Lawrence Rockefeller press release, you know, far. somebody up the chain of command called but and got that thing like removed off the internet. But this is, like, mid-episode research. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm reading now a PDF of the Todd family in America, so maybe I can uh, maybe is I that, can Is that Li it. Abraham uh, Lincoln's wife as well is from the same family? Um... I don't know. Isn't she Mary Todd? I don't know. All right, but maybe we should pick up. We this, should wrap up this yeah, thing yeah. later, and we, we can pick can it up later. Yeah. Now there's a lot with him. I think we can. Maybe we'll come back because I think he might be mentioned, and because uh, the family think, kept kept yeah. going, so it's not like it's like it, we're just talking about the main patriarch, but like his his uh, his son, and then his grandchildren, and everybody. Actually, okay. Just for my like pet by pet theory of like frontmen, it was actually I believe it was his son William B. Astor who died in 1875. It was him that handed over the New York Central Railroad, which he was like on the board of, to Cornelius Vanderbilt in 1867. So I think v Vanderbilt had already been successful at that point. But you can see this kind of okay, the Astors came in, and then they got put on by this this Brevort like Dutch family. 
and then the Astors get minted, and then they turn to, like, this Vanderbilt guy. He gets brought to the high society, and then, like, J.P. Morgan, like, like they're bringing each other in kind of one, like, you've been blessed. It's like Bill Gates gets to be the computer guy. Boom. You know? There, there, there's a feeling of, like, a, of, like, oh, there's, like, a, a some kind of plan behind. Maybe it's not just, like, an Illuminati thing at Lodge Number 8, where they all just sit down and hash all this out, but it does feel like that, I don't know, maybe something like that happened with Astor because he doesn't sound like a particularly fun person or like a, a, a pleasurable person to be around at all. He sounds kind of crazy. Mm. And, um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of these people do. This is one thing that I think, uh, isn't good to wrap up with, or this is a quote that I, I like just a little later from what I read earlier. Myers writes, out of this prevailing idea grew many of the interpretations and partial enforcements. A legislator, magistrate, or judge might be the very opposite of venal, and yet be irresistibly impelled by the force of training and association to take the current view of the unassailable rights and superiority of property. It would be biased, in fact, ridiculous to say that the privileges and exemptions enjoyed by the rich were altogether the outcome of corruption by bribes. There is a much more subtle and far more effective and dangerous form of corruption. This is corruption of the mind. For innumerable centuries, all government had proceeded, perhaps not avowedly, but in reality, upon the settled and consistent principle the sanctity of property was superior to considerations of human life, and that a man of property could not very well be a criminal and a peril to the community. Uh, under mm. various disguises, church, college, newspaper, politician, judge, were all expositors of this principle. There's mm. nothing new under the sun. Nothing new, nothing the new sun. under the, the sun. The people sure. were drugged with laudations of property, and they're still being drugged today, basically. I think that's, that's the most important point, I think, to take away from the series, is that these people are sickos, and if there's going to be such a thing as a criminal... These people are definitely it, not, you know, the pauper who is like wandering, like a, a, like a poor Irish person who was like dropped off on a random beach, like in the middle of like winter in New Jersey and like told to like go find a city or like start, you know, like die of uh, exposure. Like uh, those people, not so much the criminals. And these people, yeah, they, they're kind of the arch gangsters. They're the desperados, aren't they? Right? I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're the pirates. They're the, you'd call them an outlaw, but they wrote the laws. So what do you call it? They're in-laws. I don't know. <laughs> like, they they're like are. over-laws. Yeah. But anyways, we'll, we're going to pick up back with this series. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll just wrap up any little bits that we had with part one. There's really a lot of information here. Like, there's a uh, ton of a information. To- this guy did his homework. He did his fucking it's homework. It's a good choice to split it up. Yeah, all yeah. Right. That I cannot imagine trying to do all three volumes in uh, one episode. Um, but you know, the next one should be great. I think after you know we've, we've gone up to like the mid eighteen hundreds now. The volume two, correct me if I'm wrong, deals a lot with Vanderbilt comes in the picture, J.P. Morgan, the railroads, the trusts. You start to see the next evolution of this class, and it's interesting that he says that, you know, there's basically a vicious war of, like, all against all, very similarly to Oglesby, but he also stresses that these people share much more in common than, like, they have actual, like, material differences with one another. Like, it's actually in their, like, overall, most of the time, in their interest to collaborate with each other. And, but at the same time, he said, you know, they're, they're always in the throes of like convulsive struggles, each had to fight, not merely to get the wealth of others, but to keep what he already possessed. 
As he preyed upon the laborer, so did the rest of his class seek to prey on him. If he were less able, less cunning, or more scrupulous than they, his ruination was certain. So this is it's like a satanic game everyone's playing of you've got to be the baddest. You've got to be the, 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 the sickest sicko, basically, to win at this game. So anybody that won big at this game, I would have to assume might be a little bit of a sicko. I don't know. What do you think? A bullet from the back of a bush took Medgar Evers' blood. A finger fired the trigger to his name. A handle hit out in the dark. A hand sent the spark. Two eyes took the aim. Behind a man's brain But he can't be blamed He's only a pawn in that game The South politician preaches to the poor white man You got more than the blacks don't complain You're better than them You've been born with white skin They explain And the Negro's name Is used, it is plain For the politician's gain As he rises to fame And the poor white remains On the caboose of the train So it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in that game The deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid And the marshals and cops get the same But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool He's taught in his school From the start by the rule That the laws are with him To protect his white skin To keep up his heat So he never thinks straight About the shape that he's in So it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in that game From the poverty shacks He looks from the cracks to the tracks And the hoofbeats pound in his brain And he's taught how to walk in a pack Shoot in the back with his fist in a clinch To hang and to lynch To hide neath a hood To kill with no pain Like a dog on a chain He ain't got no name But it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in their game Today Medgar Evers was buried from the bullet he caught They lowered him down as a king But when the shadowy sun Sets on the one that fired the gun You'll see by his grave On the stone that remains Carved next to his name His epitaph plain Only a pawn in that game 